My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who in 27 years rose from the rank of the enlisted to becoming the commanding officer of Foxtrot 2nd Marine Special Operations Battalion Marine Special Operations Command. On March 4, 2007, his career took an unbelievable turn when his convoy was attacked in a complex ambush and his Marines returned fire. This is where this story goes horribly wrong. Before even returning to their fire base, word had spread like wildfire that his unit had attacked and killed numerous civilians, including women and children. They became known as the Marsoc 7, and their court of inquiry became the longest war crimes trial in Marine Corps history at three and a half weeks long and introducing over 40 witnesses and 5,000 pages of documentation. As hard as the government tried, they could not bring this elite warrior or the men under his watch and command down. He was victorious in the courtroom with no charges ever being filed on he or his Marines. But was it too much? Along his career, he was divorced twice and ultimately and unjustly turned down for further progression in command and rank. He's here to tell the complete story and answer the question, was it all worth it? I'm honored to introduce you to Major Fred Galvin, retired United States Marine Corps. How are you, my friend? Very good, DJ. Thank you for having me as your guest. Yeah, uh, I am so looking forward to talking to you about this, and we have a ton of things to cover about this, uh, simply, mostly because of the facts that there are so many tiny little details in this story that makes such a big impact on the finale of it. So I want to get started, and I talked to you before we started recording, and I said that an important thing in your book to me was when you talked about your dad. Now, I want to say, uh, first off, that I think he had a humongous impact on what you did for these Marines later and how you carried yourself while in the Marine Corps. Uh, you describe your father in the book as by saying, many, if not most sons, want to be like their fathers. Your, your father was a bully, an alcoholic, a womanizer, and a wife beater. And at three years old, you saw extreme violence in him. And then at 13 years old, it kind of came full circle. So... I want to talk about your childhood, your five brothers and sisters, and kind of what this man instilled in you at that early age. Yes, uh, well, just like is mentioned in the book, those are uh, you know my own words. There, uh, it's exactly accurate. I saw some uh, extreme violence in the home and uh, a person who is unable to manage uh, a family uh, that has really been important as you mentioned uh i've seen throughout my life and especially later on in life uh, you know there's effects of not just when somebody uh, and i'm not against you know some crazy rules that you can't have any alcohol or anything like this at all uh but 
when people get enslaved to that and it controls their mind and their decisions and their actions, that's, that's a whole nother story. Uh, unfortunately, that happens to so many individuals and there's various reasons why. Uh, why it happened to my dad, I was too young to understand. I just saw the result of that. And uh, one of those results was the negative side that you're seeing as a kid. Some of the positive is uh, in the situation with our family, it led me to completely do a 180 and realize, uh, you know, some, like I say in the book, some, some people look to their father and they uh, think that's macho and they go down that road and it turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, in future generations. Uh, I rejected that and went another direction. So uh, I didn't really analyze it until, you know, this is 15 years after this ambush. Uh, it's been, there's been time for me to process what has happened. So um, I realized that what happened in that book is probably something that now I look back with appreciation for since uh, I, I know this sounds somewhat arrogant and everything, but the amount of people who have reached out that I've served with that said no one has gone and they actually reached out to my mother and said, you know, no other, even before I wrote a book, they didn't know anything about our family situation. They just said, you know, none of these other war crimes cases. And these are actually the moms of people charged in Haditha and Hamdaniya calling my mom uh, because their sons, you know, were feeling the heat and saying that nobody in their command ever stood up for them. Uh, and I think some people probably did to different degrees and I'm not trying to diminish or throw stones, but uh, I spent some time in organizations and unlike other commissioned officers, I, I believed, you know, they told us at the infantry officer course, if you ever go into the reconnaissance community, don't stay long and don't ever go back. It'll destroy your career. Uh, I fully understood what I was doing, but that mission that you do in the caliber of American men that are doing that mission are, it's almost, it's, it's almost intoxicating. And I think that led me into a direction to want what, um, I believe a lot of those men in that community also wanted. They came from broken homes. These weren't, I'm not trying to, I'm just making comparisons of what I've seen over my years. A lot of Navy SEALs, uh, why are they good in water? Well, because they've had experience in water. Usually that takes uh, families of affluence, uh, not just to be comfortable in water, but to be have mastery of those types of skills that you need as a Navy SEAL. Those are people that had uh, two parent families normally and uh, spent a lot of time nurturing those families. Uh, that's a totally different animal than someone that came from the broken home. They saw conflict. They saw um, a lot of things that they knew were wrong and they sought something of a family as a profession. And uh, many of us, including myself and those I served with, got in the Marines and saw, hey, this isn't exactly the, you know, what I anticipated. And it led them into a direction of being assigned to all volunteer units where it was complete commitment is what was required. And I think that's a, a big differentiator of uh, serving in units like force reconnaissance and Marine Special Operations is 
yes, there can be families that, you know, were very nurturing and provided and they were athletically and talent, have all these talents and gifts. Uh, but uh, back in those days, force reconnaissance was very different than Marine Special Operations is now. Um, we always used to say, and I put it in the book, you know, it's uh, what they can guarantee you is PMS every day, not just once a month. It's pain, misery, and suffering. And that's what they promise. And that's what is actually delivered effectively. And uh, the job is, some perceive it from the outside like it's sexy, but it's definitely not. And it breeds a caliber of individual that if that's all you promise and you're not promising any uh, bonus pays or uh, anything that most people desire, you're going to get a caliber of individual that is there for the very pure reasons. And uh, it's humbling to serve with people like that. But I do think, like you said, DJ, a lot of that uh, unwittingly came from how I was raised. Um, you know, having a father I wanted to uh, have nothing in common with um, allowed me in having a broken home where uh, if we wanted anything, I'm talking like milk. You know, we had to work. We had to go swim in golf courses and fish out golf balls, cut grass, paint houses, do it, whatever odd jobs were available, uh, packaging up leaflets from a mom's, uh, the business that she worked for, um, did whatever we could spring, summer and fall to make some money. And, uh, you know, the Marine Corps was exactly what I wanted at 17 years old. And uh, I, I didn't know anything about the Marine Corps. And uh, until a, a kid in my high school was telling me, hey, he knew I wanted to join the military and I just clueless as to which branch. And he's like, the Marines, they have this motto, the first to fight. And the president can send them in without Congress, like for 180 days. I was like, man, that sounds awesome. And uh, Well, let me point so. out something when you say that, because I, I want to kind of go back to your father for just a minute. At 13 years old, your father shows up at the house. He starts pushing you around. Now, you'd been doing martial arts since you were like three years old. Uh, five. You'd gotten, yeah. got Five, I'm sorry. You'd gotten a little size on you. Uh, he was really nothing for you. When you talk about first to fight, it, it almost makes me think once again, because there were so many points in this book where I thought back to this. Your father comes home, you stand up to him, kind of protect everyone in the house, and you seem to have done that all the way through your career. What I want to know, though, mentally at 13 years old, you're standing up to a grown man who you know is your father, who you, by your own account, did not have a good relationship with what is going through your mind and what are you trying to accomplish at that age doing that? At that age, I think there was a repetition, like this isn't one, a one off. This has to be stopped. So I think, uh, you know, it was just that time and there hadn't been some prior, uh, event like that where it was like a call out. And, uh, but just like it says in the book, you know, I had been trained by a sensei. I wasn't some kid that wanted to go to karate practice and do a little of this and for a belt. And that's what I really thank my sensei for is, you know, focusing on what, you know, Roiku Kempo Okinawan karate was there for. And it was there for defending when you are attacked. And at that point, you know, I knew like, okay, the, this is going in that direction. Uh, it's actually kind of strange because when I was five years old, I went with my older brother who's about 10 years older than I am. 
and uh, he started me out in judo. And this guy was actually from Japan. And, uh, you know, as a 10 year old kid getting thrown around, literally hip thrown over the shoulder by teenage kids, uh, you're hitting that mat so hard. It took some of the enjoyment out of it. And uh, <laughs> then I was actually looking in the, they had some periodicals and, you know, as a kid, we didn't have, you know, the magic squares and the internet to, you know, fill our minds with. So right. there's anything that you could get your hands on to read You're, you know, in the Midwest, especially in the wintertime, uh, not a lot to do unless you're outdoors. So picked up this thing and I saw they're having this uh, karate class at this, uh, uh, center youth center down the road. So I went, that was what I was very interested in. And so, I went straight from judo to karate and my sensei there, uh, he was also a true believer. And, uh, you know, his, his sensei was, you know, a pure blood Okinawan, uh, you know, master. And he knew, uh, and so he, this guy lived and walked the walk, even after I retired, he, uh, I went back there and he's still teaching, uh, judo, uh, Roy Q. Kempo, Okinawan Karate, and Kung Fu. Uh, that was his life, and he, he lived it. So he taught uh, in the mindset of us. And there was a few of us that stuck around and went you know, beyond this little course and as, as far as we could go until I did stop in high school when the competitive sports and academics kind of led me to have to make a decision. But uh, so, you know, he would say, like, you need to do some of these exercises uh, you know, different grappling things like 500 times a day. And so, you know, I was a little kid and especially during the summer and on the weekends, the 500 was the minimum to me. I would do them a thousand times a day uh, to, and I was just doing these exercises and it was building muscle and bulk from just, uh, you know, where we lived, I loved to, to do that. And there was, there was a couple older kids in our, actually I had one peer of mine uh, that was my age and we were good, close friends, Mitch, and the rest of the kids in the neighborhood, very few girls, but there was a lot of guys and they were all about four or five years older. And then, uh, so what do you love to do in the Midwest? You love to wrestle and fight. And what was enjoyable for us at that stage in the game when I was a little kid was they used to have a uh, wrestling on television and that was entertainment, but the older kids took it as, you know, this is real. So, you know, they would <laughs> put your head in between their legs and give you a pile driver and not realize yeah. like what kind of damage you do. Yeah. But when you're a little kid, that hurt <laughs> bad. Like here's some kid twice your age, uh, twice your size, in some cases, giving you a pile driver and, uh, you know, just doing all kinds of rest. So uh, I think some of the martial arts were actually out of survival, DJ. It was not like, oh, you know, I just want to do this for giggles. It was out of necessity. And uh, like, if you want to survive and all the kids in your neighborhood were four or five years or more older, and um, when I say four or five, those are the ones that were still silly enough to realize maybe they thought it was fun to pick on a kid. The ones who were older than that, they would scrap, but then they started doing other things when they got in the teenage years, riding motorcycles or chasing after girls and driving cars. Uh, but it was the... It was the ones that were just under that, not able to drive. They loved to, you know, get up after you. And <laughs> so that's that's what led me to martial arts. And 
and allowed my mind to focus on uh, doing things not for proficiency or excellence. And I know in the Marines, we say, hey, you do you do things for standards of excellence, not mastery. That was not the way we did things in uh, with my sensei. He taught mastery. I mean, everything from Makata to actually Randuri, where you're sparring, everything was done to perfection. And, and I took that on my mindset personally that mastery isn't good enough. I, mean, I want absolute perfection. Uh, and I think some of that has stayed with me through my life is you train uh, till you're in a position where you could just dominate your opponent. And it's, it's in your mind that, yeah, they can, they can inflict pain in that as a leader, you will experience that somebody is going to hurt you. Uh, there's going to be unfair fighting uh, from multiple people, but you must have that mindset where you're thinking multiple steps ahead and you have so many tools and moves that you can apply a technique that's just going to inflict further pain. Uh, so as a kid, this is what I was doing. I remember taking the city bus uh, every day of the week down to uh, either the city park or to actually a couple of different community colleges that he also taught at and his house. Um, various times of the year, we do it indoor or outdoor. Uh, but this was something I would I normally do about five days a week with my sensei or seven days a week, you know, by myself. And uh, it's something I loved. It was passion. And uh, but I think in those days, it was great. If you read books like The Outliers and uh, you, you realize in order to have mastery, you must have the initiative, the drive, but you also have to have instruction from somebody that is a master, not just somebody that's mildly amused and has some techniques, but somebody who is truly a master. And then you have to do that after you receive that training, you have to do that on your own uh, and work to perfection to so at 13, I was by no means um, some kind of expert on this, but right. I was going to these community colleges. And I remember the college I went to get finally down the road, get my MBA at. Uh, my sensei was teaching there at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I'd take the city bus down there when he started teaching. And these guys were in college. Uh, and, and I remember they, they were fighting for a grade and they'd start trying to come after me. And I, I was just some teenage kid much smaller and and for them it was on because they had to you know they wanted to fight for this grade but it was when you have mastering you have the technique um it's i won't say it's easy to dominate but it you just have much greater experience in fighting and being able to anticipate what somebody is likely going to do based on their their patterns and um you know, the, the likelihood of how they can and can't perform. So, well, I, I think the most interesting part of that, when your dad came back and you kind of stood him down and he left after all this, your mom left him that year and she divorced him. Do you think she took some of that strength from you on that? Because it seems like there was a paradigm shift in everybody's life that year. Yes. Uh, and I haven't really thought deeply about that, you know, even though uh, after retiring the last eight and a half years, you know, I had my mom live with me to uh, help help her out. The uh, what I will say is I don't think that event of standing up to him was a catalyst. Maybe it was. But I will say that 
it may not have been a, a decision point for my mother other than that did take some things into action where my dad put a for sale sign in the yard with that, you know, un, undiscussed and unannounced. He just stopped by and decided he's going to sell that house. And we weren't in good communication. He would, you know, just come by and say these, uh, you know, awful things. So when that happened, you know, my mom, she was never dated, you know, afterwards at all uh, to this day. But, uh, you know, she she realized in the Catholic Church at that time that, you know, it was kind of very shameful to get a divorce and couldn't have communion. And it was, uh, you know, small town like that. It was it was really embarrassing. So uh, she tried not to until the house went up for sale and then she realized she didn't have a choice. She went across the street and asked a neighbor and she's like, you've got to get a, a lawyer and fight for yourself because this guy's going to sell your house and you'll be out on the street. Uh, again, DJ, like some of those lessons and you see like somebody that would do that to their family, to their own children uh, that did instill some things in my mind where it's like, okay, that for sure uh, led me to think differently. It programmed me differently. And I've never talked about this other than writing it in the book because you're the first one to ask, but it led me to lead differently in the Marines to include that first uh, deployment into combat as a young enlisted Marine, where I was like, okay, we, we literally weren't trained well. And I realized that if, if I was ever a leader making decisions on training, I will take complete ownership of that and I will treat and treat the Marines and train them as best I can. And I had this, uh, not a, ego or narcissistic, but it was a reputation that uh, a lot of people thought the training was just out of control. And it was just so much that this guy's just hell bent on training. And it wasn't like, hey, I'm, you know, Bobby Knight, you know, just driving a team, you know, for, you know, ridiculous reasons. But in a gun battle, there's only one winner. Sometimes there's none. But you need to have that mindset. And that's how I had been raised is to dominate your adversary uh completely dominate and and have them know it and have their other competitors you know they're out there realize that when these guys come in and they're dressed like this and they look like this and they approach at this time and in this manner that you better you know just submit because and we had that reputation as i made mention in the in the book on one of these deployments in iraq our interpreter had said the way that we were apprehending these people in the middle of the night, they thought there was aliens that would just abduct these people because all of a sudden these guys would just vanish, you know, un unheard of how we're getting in or out. And uh, that kind of psychological, you know, warfare on people is very, very effective. Uh, and just like Sun Tzu said, you know, to, it's the best to, to defeat your adversary without having to draw your sword. And uh, that's, our, our objective, as I also wrote in the book, was not to get in a gun battle and get killed. Uh, a lot of people thought, especially on prior Iraq deployments, that you know we were uh, kind of wimpish because we w wouldn't get in a decisive engagement. But that wasn't our job, is to get in there and sling lead and get into a deep firefight. And we'd been in those, but that's uh, some people went out there looking for that and tried to start that. That's... Uh, 
you know, my commitment again was to those who were my family and I wasn't going to let some bad decision uh, lead us into something that where somebody has less of a chance of surviving and could be wounded very severely. So um, let me ask you, and maybe I misunderstood it in the book, but you never lost a soldier, right? Under your command. Never. So I think that that's not a thing that we should gloss over very well. I mean, you talked about that they thought the training was crazy and stuff, but it paid off in spades in the end. You didn't lose one soldier under your command. And that's, it is a point to draw out because I made mention right before the war kicked off in Iraq, uh, there were three serious fatalities at uh, the unit that I was going to at First Force Reconnaissance Company. And the Marine Corps, prior to the evolution of uh, Marine Special Operations, uh, Force Reconnaissance was the very elite. So they had a helicopter crash, and they had a skydiving accident, then they had a shooting accident, all resulted in not injuries, but fatalities. Um, so that in those types of units, you're not kind of pushing the envelope a little, you're peeling it all the way back. And uh, you're pushing these things to extremes and everybody in those units that's supporting those units, the aviators that are flying you in, the aviators that are dropping aviation ordnance. I mean, it's, it's as realistic and as live as you can get it. Um, and that led to a lot of fatalities. Then on one deployment that we went into Iraq, you know, we replaced a platoon that had 22 out of 24 of the Marines wounded or killed. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I was going to bring that up next. Yes. <clears throat> and so whether it's training or actual combat, um, it is a thinking man's game. And I also don't want to paint a picture that, you know, I, by any means, am some great military tactician. That was something I committed my entire life to everything I could, but if someone is out there and they are a gunfighter, they they carry a gun for a living, whether they're in the military or they're in law enforcement. Um, one of the things I would recommend is they get their life straight with God because there's things that no matter how good you think you are, uh, you cannot control, you can try to influence things, but uh, you, if you don't get yourself right in your mind and your heart with God, there will be times when likely an individual will hesitate. Uh, this isn't Hollywood. You're not Leonidas out there and it's not glorious and sexy to die. American culture is to preserve life and to, uh, you know, pursue happiness. Not And some people pursue greed. So there's a lot of hesitation. And when you get your life completely right and you know what you're there to do, you develop plans and you execute you execute those plans violently uh, to give yourself the advantage, but you try to, you know, an officer's job is to regulate the violence and to see, you know, things that could be coming and anticipate things uh, and not to completely get sucked into the center of the violence or to react with emotion at all. Uh, and that's very, very difficult when you're in something that, uh, you know, you see a car bomb, uh, you're you're taking immediate action. You're you're shooting individuals. You're hearing the sounds. You know all 
you know, four to five of your senses can actually be engaged in battle. Uh, that's something that most people don't ever experience. And that's not what we're trained to in the 21st century is to, and not in America, uh, to engage someone where there's a car bomb that goes off and it's intended, it's utilized, planned and designed with fuel to burn and cause excruciating pain where people scream. That's, that's not something that is experienced on the streets of anywhere in America. Uh, but that was reality for many Americans for 20 years, uh, where they just continue to escalate the horror and the violence against us. And we were trying to, uh, fight back with this baloney of, uh, hearts and minds. And that's where things a <laughs> little bit por different portion of the story, but a bit more is where things became immoral. So, uh, so let me ask you though, you mentioned that we also talked about 22 out of 24 or 23 out of 25 casualties out of a unit. So your guys know what they're getting into. It's fully volunteer. You know what you're getting into, but you see that before you take over. It's got to switch the mindset up in your guys. So how do you keep driving them forward to go, look, I know they, they got decimated over here. This is what we're going to do to not follow in that pursuit. Yes. Um, I can't speak for everybody in our, even in the platoon that I led. So there's 25 of us uh, on different deployments. Sometimes the number changed to just a little uh as the years went on, we realized we need to plus ourselves up a little bit more. But so I can't speak for everybody. However, I would like to say that um, I'm not saying this because the Marines I served were warriors and uh, they accepted that my life could be required of me tonight and every night that we went out. And we went out during days and we did very dangerous, dangerous helicopter hard hits right in the middle of the day when they'd see a, a drone would you know be showing that there was some missiles being or rockets i should say being transported i mean we did some things that were downright uh dangerous we knew could kill us and likely would kill us uh just because we're going to a position of extreme risk and uh anyway we did these missions and a lot of these uh missions some of them we got ambushed on and I've had a lot of friends contact me <laughs> social media and the text me. They send me out, Hey, why didn't you put all this stuff in the book that we did? And, and it's like, Hey, look, we had to get it down. We had to cut over 25% of a lot of that combat action out because it is what it is. People read books and marketers know it. Publishers realize that people don't read long books. Their job is to sell a book, a publisher, and uh, some really like that, but we don't go to the niche. They try to go to the mass. But what I'm saying is uh, there was many things that were not included in the book and we were ambushed on multiple times. Again, that led me to increase my faith because I'm realizing like this has happened again and again and again. I've seen what this has done to other units and other Marines. Uh, you see helicopters coming back. You see uh, planes with draped with flags getting pushed onto a plane and flown out. Uh, you were seeing that on a daily basis on these deployments. Uh, so you realize the gravity of what you're doing. Um, and in some of these ambushes, 
I remember going back after it was over, you know, someone would, we'd be out for several days, uh, just hitting targets one after the next, uh, multiple targets each night. And, uh, you get back, people would be exhausted and, uh, but you're out there in the desert of Iraq and it's pitch black, especially before the moonrise. people, you can't see anything. There's no cultural lighting. And I remember hearing some of our guys after I coming out of the, you know, we'd, uh, scrape up what we could intelligence wise, trying to get information from people we had detained and, you know, far after the mission's over, I'm walking back to get my head down for a little bit. And, uh, I'd hear people that some of the, the guys in my own platoon would be like, Hey, you know, they'd be telling it, you know, in their mind what they had experienced and sensed and, you know, the, how they were managing the fear, you know, the people would say, you know, it sounded like, you know, I've heard other people tell me at other times, uh, you know, how concerned they were, or they thought that on the radio, I was sounding like I was falling asleep. I'm not some superhuman or like Superman where I'm just like, nothing impacts me and I can just take a bullet. Not at all. But when you have given complete commitment, and that's to me, like the definition of love. And if you, you know, are a Christian and you believe that, hey, this is what I was created to do and called to do, and I'm here to do it no matter what. And once, and, and some people have a hard time, especially if you're married and you have kids, there's, there's things going on inside your head that make it difficult for you to completely let go. Um, but it's just like when you're doing some of the training that we do in the Marines, you know, getting sharked at the bottom of the pool when you're doing some, uh, training for your dive training, getting bounced off the bottom, you know, by, uh, you know, a huge, huge person who's an instructor and you just have to kind of let go and get comfortable that you're going to, you're going to feel the pain it's going to be what, miserable and you're going to suffer. What uh, year did you go to dive school? So dive school actually came to us. So it came to Okinawa. Oh, really? Because station. I went at Ford Island in Hawaii <laughs> and I had some of your Okinawa guys in my class. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, we went, I know exactly what you're saying though. When you're talking about that, you just got to kind of shut off everything around you and yes. focus on what has to be done. Right. So in 1999, uh, they had a mobile training team that came out and instead of, and I, I'm not trying to make any comparisons, but the instructors from dive school in Panama city, Florida, they didn't, they didn't want to be away from their families any longer than they had to. So right. they did a six day a week program instead of a five day a week program. And the difference between Panama city, I would say that what I've heard from many people, especially that went in spring break is the, most difficult thing in Panama city is keeping your mind off of those bikinis on the beach and in the, because you're not just doing the physical training and the pool work. You're having to study dive medicine, uh, physiology, uh, tables for, you know, decompression and, you know, planning your dive there. There's a lot to, you have to mentally and physically concentrate on. And when, uh, some people are in their early twenties, even younger. That's, that is very hard to do when there's so much, uh, that can distract you outside the gate. So in Okinawa, we didn't have any of that. <laughs> so <laughs> I would rather take the heat hills and the current of, you know, the, 
Sea of Japan than uh, having been down in Pan having to go through Panama City, which I didn't have to. Maybe in some ways I would have enjoyed that, but uh, some guys were saying that was pretty rough because it's hard for some folks not to knock a few of those soldiers back and uh, enjoy the sights and sounds of Panama City. So in, in saying all that, because you, you've went to, you, you know, as you go over there, you've been to jump school, dive school, you've done all these different things. Do you think that, I, I think the biggest thing for me reading your book that helped you also as an officer was being enlisted because you saw it from both ends of the spectrum, not only the schools, but you saw it from a different perspective that I don't think, and I think you would agree, a lot of officers see because they come in as officers and they never see that other side of the world. Yeah, that is true. And uh, I'd also like to add to that, that things have changed over the years with how military members are compensated, uh, whether they're officer or enlisted. And so now, what we've seen, and we're going to probably see more, unfortunately, because less pe less and less people want to join the military. Uh, we're seeing every branch of the service, ex especially the Army, like here we're less than three months till the end of the fiscal year, and the Army has not even met 40% of their recruiting goals. So this is serious because the Marines, we are a very small branch, and you don't win wars, especially against a a superpower like China and or Russia with the Marine Corps. It takes the army. Um, I'm not being disloyal saying that it's just a fact. And so glad to hear a Marine say that. <laughs> well, it's just, <laughs> it's just sheer numbers. And when you have right. the Chinese with their numbers, you know, the Marine Corps is a speed bump. So it's just the reality. Uh, you have to understand um, that. But my point is, um, that people are compensated much more now and they get comfortable and they have a house, especially in places I'd say like Camp Lejeune, North Carolina at that time, people could afford a house uh, in California. If they could afford it, they're living, they're probably commuting over an hour away by car, tw you know, twice a day. Some people stay at the barracks during the week, but anyway, there's a, when, when people are compensated the way they are and then they can get the house, the couch, the wife, the kids, I think that makes a bit of a difference. And young guys get married too, young enlisted, uh, but they just don't have the same resources. Uh, when officers are paid a lot more, I mean, I've never met an officer that didn't have a car. By the time they're out in the operational forces, they have a car so they can uh, meet not just one girl, they can meet many. They just have greater resources and opportunities. And uh, I'm not being some punk and saying that. It's just a fact. Uh, you know, when I was enlisted, I had to take a bus if I wanted to go out. And the bus stopped running at a certain time. So I couldn't just go bar hopping so easily. Plus, you know, we we didn't have the resources to, we weren't allowed to live off base until a certain rank. And you're so you're walking around with this little bag they issued you in boot camp. They call it a war bag and it's camouflage and you, know, you just look like an idiot walking around like most girls know when they see you got a shaved head in this camouflage bag like that's and, and you don't know because you're just thrilled but when you're a young marine about being a marine you think it's the coolest thing in the world and, uh, and you think these girls are just prejudging you like yeah because they can tell <laughs> you, you don't have any money 
you don't have a house and they know what that drill is all about. So, but uh, I think having that in mind and I realized that, okay, uh, some of these guys don't have all this opportunity. And, and a lot of these guys that are serving are from mid America uh, and they, they really do love having camaraderie and close friends and the officer. There was a big difference. I saw it between going to boot camp and then going to officer candidate school and boot camp. It was about your platoon and your loyalty in that platoon. And as an officer, it was, you were evaluated as an officer candidate, uh, individually. It was not as a team. And, uh, and I think some people, there, there is flaws in that. And I think that's what you see in this book, A Few Bad Men. And uh, when it's taken too extreme that, you know, hey, this is about me as an individual versus me as a member of an organization. Uh, I just remember in boot camp, they would, you know, they'd sometimes they'd march our platoons into each other and they would say, do not ever let somebody break your ranks. And they would intentionally march you into those platoons to demonstrate you know, the principle of unit integrity and that you would fight uh, bitterly. You, you just smash these guys if, you know, they start integrating, but they're intentionally marching these platoons in there, you know, for the rule of, you know, to develop a cohesive unit. They didn't do that to us in officer candidate school. They didn't do that in the basic school. You were trained to fight as, as an individual, as a leader. And, uh, they always wanted to see you as a leader and you competed against others to show your leadership. And there, I think are problems when, you know, people try to, you know, accentuate that, you know, without any type of, you know, absolutes or regulations or guidance, you know, or coach or supervision saying, Hey, enough, enough. When, and I, I know in the Marine Corps, they always talk about, you know, leadership traits, uh, they talk about mentoring, but unfortunately, mentoring, I'd, I'd say it probably hasn't changed too much. I just, you know, started working at Tesla from, but two months ago, I was working as a civilian with the Marine Corps. I'd worked for four years, you know, in the civilian capacity for the Department of Defense. Things really haven't changed. Uh, you know, it's But don't you think those are just buzzwords? It's in law enforcement too. Those are buzzwords that they talk about because they want to breed a certain sense of thinking that things are done a certain way when in fact they're, they're not, those are, those are buzzwords. Those get people excited yes. about doing something. Yes. Now I will say there was mentoring as an officer, but it was very infrequent and it took an extraordinary person. And I've had, I have those mentors. I have them right now. Um, uh, I actually went to an internment of a friend here just recently in California uh, who had been a mentor, a Vietnam veteran, a sergeant, and then uh, served over two decades with LAPD and on their SWAT team, just a, a hero. And, uh, you know, but, you know, here's a Silver Star winner, three Purple Hearts, um, you know, just an incredible man, raised an incredible family. Uh, there are those mentors and I, I didn't just have them. Uh, from, you know, Vietnam era, but I had, uh, when I got in the force recon community, I saw a lot of these enlisted, they would take the time because that was their life. Uh, those NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, the sergeants, and then the, 
the staff non-commissioned officers, I'd see these staff sergeants, gunnery sergeants, they're so dedicated, so professional, and they would take the time and they would mentor and they'd be there around the clock. You'd see the commitment that these guys, but the officers were nowhere to be seen, especially if, if an officer got in that community and they were married, uh, direct conflict because, you know, in the reconnaissance community, we call it jack of all trades and master of none because there's literally so many tasks that you have to, you know, hopefully you don't have proficiency. You try to have, you try to have mastery of these, but it is impossible. But in your stri striving to master them, well, that's going to cut into family time. And I mentioned that in the book about, uh, you know, these wives a couple times uh, when I was uh, a platoon commander as a lieutenant. And I, we got called a month early to deploy because Saddam Hussein had pushed right up to the border of Kuwait. This was after Desert Storm. And uh, so we, we left early and I could just see that look on this uh, wife of one of my sergeants face, you know, like you bring him back home alive. And that's always stuck with me. But I would often see the commitment of my peers, many of which were not even married, but they were just like, hey, Southern California, when you're young, there's just so much to do and uh, you got to set your priorities. And, you know, I was I was glad I made those commitments uh, early and permanently in my career that nothing will take a higher priority than the Marines and their training. And then when I got to the East Coast, again, where it's a little bit more we'll say affordable to live. They can have a house and a lot of guys could afford a wife and they had kids. And, um, you know, it's almost like we had this rebellion going on. The wives came up and that was that book. What, what is written in there is true. They came up to my senior enlisted, uh, advisor and he, you know, was these, like, these girls are having some kind of mutiny. They wanted more time. And, uh, you know, I, I overheard that and, you know, it's, it's not like we're training them for bragging reasons. It's just, to me, that's your, the best chance to have a long-term life insurance policy that isn't paid in cash. It's paid in, you know, a beating heart coming back to you in, you know, the best likelihood. Because I, you know, being in charge of training Tesla in North America, I see a direct correlation. I always have between how you apply critical thinking and how you plan and how you develop and how you exercise training with enough repetitions to where ideally nothing exceptional happens. You know, you're, you're doing it the way it's supposed to be and nobody's life is lost or seriously injured because you've done it the way that you're supposed to. And that's what I was trained in martial arts. That's what I went in on to play in organized sports as a youth. Uh, and I had, I mentioned them in the acknowledgments in this book. Some of the coaches in my high school were father figures. I went to an all-boy Catholic school. The mentorship that they gave, I, I look back even frequently now here in the past year, I've just been amazed at how not just priests, we had priests that were, you know, the Jesuit priests who were teachers and some were also coaches, but we had, you know, regular teachers who were not priests that got up in the morning. They were there at school at seven, about seven 15. They'd work as a teacher all day. They would go and they'd coach a sport at night all throughout the year. And then they would develop lessons plan and teach us in the morning. I just look at that 
and think how dedicated they were. And these were family men. They had they had wives and kids. And I just look at the, the complete commitment of people like that. And that's that's who raised me, um, you know, going to Rockhurst High School. But was, let me ask you something, because something really pops up in my mind. For the majority of your career, you would say you were single. You mention it in the book that you get rid of girls when you move somewhere else, when you go on deployment, whatever it may be, you get rid of whatever girl you're dating. The majority yes. of the time. And I'm not saying that to, yeah. to make it sound bad. I'm, I'm, I'm saying all yeah. that to say this. When you say that, the commitment to these families and stuff, you always made sure, though, that that there almost wasn't any attachments to you. And I'm trying to understand that. And I was trying to understand it when I read the book, because I feel like there's a dichotomy when you talk there, there is this guy that wants these families and wants that. And, but then when the other thing comes up, training deployments, things like that, that is what you focus on. So can you talk a little bit to that? Cause I tried to figure it out the whole way through the book. Cause I'm like, we well, saying two different things, but I think he's trying to say the same thing. Yes. Well, in, I know in the Army they have, which I was in the Marines, but I worked with the Army. They have a character trait of a selfless service. And uh, that's like you said, you know, with mentorship and other things, a lot of lip service paid to that. It's talked about often, but it's not often practiced um, effectively. So, but uh, just like I mentioned in the book, when they were ordering me to go to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. This wasn't even a deployment. This was just moving from one coast of the U.S. in California to North Carolina. And I mentioned the the girlfriend who I was dating at the time, Sugar Ray, and I was very attached to her. But it, it was a it was a goodbye kiss. And you know, we were we were in love. We talked about getting married. I just realized that um, I am not going to force her to move across the country when I am not going to completely commit to her. Um, because I realized in standing a unit up, that's going to go to war and the things that were in my head in 2006, uh, when they were sending, there was a surge of American forces, over a hundred thousand American service members were sent to Iraq. And there was a full page ad in the New York times saying general Betrayus, because general Petraeus, who was a senior uh, officer for the United States in Iraq, he requested the surgery, got it. And so this mass amount of military went in there. And I say that as background because it was a very bloody and unpopular demonstration on the television, the media, there was almost like information operations going on back at home, similar to what was going on in Vietnam, that this was very unpopular. And uh, I was very well aware of that. I wasn't getting information singularly from media, I would every day after training, when we were back home, and usually these deployments, you're only home for maybe five months. But I was on after the training was over, I'd be on a classified computer, uh, communicating to the platoon commanders, the officers who were over in Iraq, uh, and getting information updates and studying about that. I remember my my girlfriend and I, we used to love to work out and, you know, the guys get back from training at five or six, they go eat and I'm going for probably about three hours of uh, communication back and forth with leaders over in Iraq. Uh, so I'm getting that in my mind. A lot of people, you know, they, 
they get over to Iraq and they do a two week turnover with the units that's there and the units that you're coming in with. Uh, I'm not, I'm just stating fact that didn't occur for me because that didn't really stop in between the deployments. My mind was completely on the war. It was thinking what they're thinking, trying to continually sharpen it. And that again happened, you know, from my sensei instilling that in my mind, those coaches in high school talking about whether it's football or track or athletic conditioning, how you will do things to perfection, how you will give everything uh, that was programmed into my mind uh, all throughout my youth. And uh, I realized that, you know, it probably was an advantage that uh, certain things happened to me when I was young, went to an all boys school, high school. There was at that time when normal people are dating that there was just such a scarcity of women. I mean, you didn't see them at all. They weren't on the campus. And so I had this undivided attention. Same thing. My mom's example. She didn't say things to us. She just lived her life. She was a workaholic. And uh, the lady next door, who was a war bride from Britain, married to our uh, next door neighbor, she would do the cooking because my mom would work so late. She would usually come home like seven o'clock and the kids needed to be fed. And, uh, but my mom didn't say anything. She just showed it and proved uh, what work was all about. And uh, it's amazing to see how she is to this day. But that was ingrained into me like a brand. It didn't uh, come verbally it was it was something that was like burned into your mind that this is the way you do business and uh i i do believe you know what happened and is recorded in that book was not um accidental or coincidental it was you know just like the book uh the outliers you do things enough that odds will be in your favor uh, hard work does pay off I wasn't born with a silver spoon and had all these resources and natural gifts and talents. It, to put it bluntly, I was the kid that uh, I had to work a lot harder because I didn't have a dad to spend time uh, playing baseball, basketball, football, or any of that. It was just something I, I really did enjoy being outdoors and very athletic. And, and uh, like I said, those kids in our neighborhood who also loved playing sports, uh, they were older. And so you, you had to, <laughs> you had to be able to defend yourself. Well, let's talk about uh, the actual story that's going on in this book. Cause we've kind of hit around it a lot, but I want to kind of set it up. I want to point out before the ambush happened with you, there were three major incidents that happened. Fallujah, Haditha, and uh, Hamandia. Um, we'll go to Fallujah first. Uh, a Lieutenant was left with some Iraqis that were taken into custody uh, he, for some reason, um, took their, their restraints off. He said that they were coming towards him, made him nervous. And both of them were killed when his company came back. He was eventually charged with war crimes on that charged with murder. Uh, that's in April of 2004. Then, uh, Hamandia happens in 2005. Is that correct? Or is that 2006? I think Haditha is 2005. Yeah. November 2005 Haditha. is Haditha. That's no, a mass killing. Yeah. Uh, that's a mass killing. Four Marines are charged with murder. Battalion commander, three officers are charged with murder. And then, of course, like I said, we have Hamandia. And that is uh, Iraqi's man is grabbed from his home. He's thrown into a pit. 
that a previous ID went off. There was a, a little cover-up going on. People were charged with war crimes on that. Now, I say all those things to say this. One, not the best scenario to go into when you've got this working against you. Definitely not the best. What I will say, though, I say all those things to say this. Not one of your guys from the Marsoc 7 was charged with a war crime. No. Things were brought up. Uh, the COI happened, but not one of them was charged with a war crime. And I say all that because... These things, when they talked about them, there were clear things that happened in these that showed there was intention there. There was all these different kinds of things to prove what they were going. Then we get to yours. And it's it this story plays out almost like uh almost like a fiction story that it's made up because it's so crazy how it happens and everything going to it. Now, I want you to set up the 4th of March, 2007, this complex ambush. And according to you, what happened that day? Okay. Do you want me to go into the fine details or more? Uh, I, I, well, what I would like to do is kind of go the overview of it first, because I kind of want to set it up. And I'm going to bring up that picture that we talked about. Uh, you just tell me when it's time to bring it up and I'll bring it up, but I want you to do the overview and then we'll get into the nitty gritty of the crime scene and all that kind of stuff that was by any means, even non-law enforcement looking into it was crazy from the interrogations to the crime scene, to the recovery of evidence, all those different things. So let's set up the overview and then let me know when you want to bring up the pictures. Okay. So I'll bring it down to about 15,000 feet and get a little color in there. We were going on a mission on the 4th of March. We left at 6 o'clock in the morning. There was a three-fold mission. And briefly, we were told to get up in the Torbora Mountains. Uh, these are snow-covered mountains, 14,000 feet elevation. That was the last place Osama bin Laden was spotted. We thought, oh, man, when we first got there, this is going to be great. Last place Osama bin Laden. So we continued to request helicopters. We were very anxious and bullish trying to get up in those mountains. But the boss who I worked for, Colonel Haas, Army Green Bray, put this uh, restraint, which was smart. He said, hey, I can't have another Operation Red Wings. You must have a quick reaction force being able to immediately reinforce if you get any contact. Okay, that's smart. I understand why. And uh, so we requested to get up into those mountains with helicopters and then have a, a quick reaction force be able to flown in there with helicopters. Everybody who's ever seen or read the book, Lone Survivor, saw... You know, Navy SEALs, uh, this was in 2005, you know, they were inserted in helicopters. They had a quick reaction force that had helicopters to support them. Uh, the, the main difference is we were there in Jalalabad, right where the helicopters were. The helicopters were sitting there doing nothing for day after day, week after week. And so anyway, kind of was like a catch 22. Hey, get up in the mountains, but we're not going to give you the support to, that you're required to have in order to do that. So this mission, one, we were attempting to go to this area where we could stage a quick reaction force right on the Afghan-Pakistan border. They had an army base that was there. And we were like, hey, we could stage vehicles here and we could at least insert a patrol or some recon teams in the foothills and start uh, looking around like we were required to do. We were trying to do the mission as best we could uh, with restriction that they didn't give us any of the resources. So 
we went there to do a, the first of the three things we were doing that day was a face-to-face -face coordination with the army officer in charge of that base to make sure she would allow us to have a dedicated quick reaction force there. That was no problem. The second thing we were doing is to do a visual reconnaissance right after that coordination of that area in the foothills so that before we committed to it, I wanted myself and our Marines to visually see where we were going to go and uh, how that train, how formidable it was. This is the Kyber Pass, you know, very steep, uh, some of the most challenging train in, on the planet. And uh, we did need to do a, you know, a daylight visual reconnaissance. The third mission that we were doing that morning was to meet the tribal leaders in this village. And this was a big change, DJ, from Iraq. We, if we had information and intelligence that was good intelligence, we could go and prosecute a target, meaning we could go capture or kill uh, somebody that we knew was an outlaw. The thing that had changed in 2006, in October of 2006, we changed from the U.S. rules of engagement to the NATO rules of engagement in Afghanistan. And that was the start of the forever war. So prior to that, Afghanistan was kind of a sleepy hollow. But I think there was people in the Pentagon and right across the street from the Pentagon, when you fly into D.C., whether it's Dulles or Reagan National Airport, and you see the names on the tops of those buildings, Raytheon, Lockheed, Boeing, General Dynamics. Those people love war because they benefit financially like you've never seen. DJ, you and I, we don't even have friends that get picked up in Lear jets and flown in there. And, you know, that's their little access ticket. You know, they need it. You need a badge to get in the Pentagon. So you have to you have to show that badge unless guess what? They just left the military. Unless you're that's right. A four, retired four star general. Then then you just go waltzing in literally VIP. The only ones that get a. Uh, Automatic exemption, retired four-star general. So they just go. Why do you in. think that is? Well, it's it's a racket, you know. They so back in World War One, World War Two, they didn't have the security that we have after nine eleven. Now you can't get in there. So everybody knows. And Smedley Butler, one of the most famous Marine Corps generals, wrote this book after World War One, called "War Is a Racket," and he said, "Hey, we're going to go to war with the Japanese. We're going to go to war with." Adolf Hitler, he's like, you just mark my words. And I'll say it on the record right now. We will be at war. We're going to get drawn into this war. Although the treaty has expired to defend Taiwan. I ask all your listeners, research it, look it up. That's expired. But every member of Congress and all these retired generals that are on these boards, you know, the, this is the no general left behind program. All these guys get out and they get on these boards and they make money hand over fist. Uh, because they are needed. They're needed to go in there and influence and persuade people. And they don't want straight shooters to be promoted in this system. They want the jellyfish leaders, the ones that will buckle every time. And that's who we promote in the military right now. Why do you think we're having such a problem with retention and recruitment? It's because people know like the military is not what it used to be. And these leaders are just out for themselves. And that's how you get promoted. How do you get promoted? You read our book, A Few Bad Men. You see these guys, how they got promoted is they chucked somebody under the bus uh, to take the heat and the blame off them. Anybody that's been in corporate world sees the same thing that's happened there, too. Uh, if you're getting some heat on you, grab somebody, and chuck them under the bus. The person that's the busiest and that's doing the most work, you finally find something that's, you know, 
where somebody's you know doesn't like that and they're gonna like find some reason to make it look like whatever he's or she's doing is is crazy or ridiculous and start getting sentiment going the wrong way towards them and that person becomes an easy target the person that's doing things the best they can uh unfortunately that's that's the way that's the state of our u.s military right now if anyone says different and they're in the military uh you need you need to take a good honest look long and wide across the whole entire organization and and be honest with yourself but anyway well, i and i ask that because I think those generals that you're talking about, not necessarily they were generals at the time, but there were some people that were definitely shooting for those stars. That's oh. the reason I ask you that. When you say that Afghanistan was a sleepy hollow, but there were some people at the Pentagon that wanted stuff done, what what exactly was it that they wanted done? Well, when you devise these rules of engagement with the hamstring, the frontline foot soldiers, and they give the advantage, you know, this... So at that time, let me explain to you what General Petraeus did. You know, he got, uh, he left Afghanistan or left Iraq and went back to near my hometown in eastern Kansas, uh, Fort Leavenworth. And he was a three star there, developed uh, the doctrine of counterinsurgency. He sent it over to the Marine Corps, uh, Marine Corps General at uh, Marine Corps Combat Development Command in Quantico, Virginia at the time, was none other than General Jim Mattis. So this hearts and minds campaign of counterinsurgency and, and everybody has this admiration and love for General Mattis. I'm not saying he didn't do many things good, but I'm saying this counterinsurgency strategy. Any, so you think General Mattis right now would send his new bride to a bed and breakfast in Bagram? DJ, you got to be on Coke, Dope, or dog food to believe in that. That's garbage. No, but he pushed this thing for over 20 years. You know, this, this hearts and minds. General Mattis took it one step further and, you know, there's no original idea with that guy. Uh, he hijacked the Hippocratic Oath and said, we're going to have the slogan in the Marines of first do no harm. So let's let's calibrate our gauges here. Remember this guy, Mr. Pearl, the reporter that got his head cut off over in Afghanistan right at the start of the war and why media wouldn't even send reporters over there unless they were completely embedded with American patrols. I mean, that's costing news agencies a lot of money. So that's one thing that impacted, and I'll get to that here in a second, why they started hiring these native Afghans to be stringers and to be, you know, <laughs> if, if you're some news source and you're living in a Taliban controlled village <clears throat> right on the Afghan-Pakistan border, so guess what? We can't go into Pakistan uh, unless you're like SEAL Team 6. So if you're not going, and that's like a training sanctuary. And what do you think is right on the other side of the border of Afghanistan, well, that's your logistics node. Think of Amazon Fulfillment Center. That's where these fully radicalized fighters come in and they link up with their handlers to get their jihad on and kill the infidels in Kandahar and Kabul and Sangin and all across. So the third mission that we were on on the morning of uh, 4 March was to, you know, and we had to play by these goofy rules of engagement. Again, a year, a year prior in Iraq, we would just go and roll people up. Uh, 2007, you know, we had to do this first do no harm. You had to have like a federal case against somebody. So you have to go in there. We knew where there's four fully radicalized suicide bombers. We even knew the house they were in. You have to go in there and try to suss these guys out and 
meet with the tribal elders and sit around and waste a lot of time, possibly get people killed. And when we went into that town, as we approached, the, the pattern of life had changed completely from three hours prior when we went through there, where it was a hustle and bustle, normal pattern of life, atmospherics, women and children in the marketplace, this 180 degrees out. Nothing but fighting age men lined up on the side of the road like it's a parade. We go in there, you know, we realize, okay, now we're in the throat of this. We can't turn around. These guys want to fight us. Car bomb goes off. Boom. Uh, burns the trees over 100 feet in the air. Uh, immediately after that, it went off right on the bumper of our second Humvee, which was our ambulance vehicle. Then another sports utility vehicle, a Toyota Prado. That was a picture given by a non-governmental organization and worker during the court of inquiry uh, of the actual car bomb at nine o'clock in the morning on the, on the 4th of March. Uh, so Is that the that biggest happened, car bomb you'd ever seen by far, okay. even to this day. Uh, so this, this car bomb was constructed mainly of fuel and mortar rounds to blast shrapnel 360 degrees. And, uh, that, uh, was intended to wound and, uh, horrifically. So when somebody gets burned like that, and I was describing earlier, it's, that is such a psychological devastation of what is, uh, you know, people remember that and they become less willing to fight and, you know, they just don't want to fight or have to do it very often. Uh, so, but this picture is of the actual ambush zone is you see, uh, on the South side of that one road that, uh, there's a road that goes East West or from the right to the left. That is, uh, that is the road and you see what uh, looks like a little dry riverbed to the south. That is uh, a riverbed that goes over the spin pool bridge. Uh, so you see right there, but just to the right of that, you know, about a uh, you know, half an inch across, you see the uh, this little unimproved trail that a sports utility vehicle, a Toyota Prado came driving at our second vehicle that just got hit we pulled over and we we're stationary in a what we call a herringbone formations the vehicles kind of spread out that's the tactics we use and uh so this sports utility vehicle had a driver and three other passengers the three passengers were hanging out of the windows firing their ak-47s fully automatic at our second vehicle uh our vehicles we stopped we thought that second vehicle that got blown up we thought that there's nobody that could survive that. Immediately, the turret gunner who was knocked down from that blast had some shrapnel in his right bicep. He stood to his feet, uh, extinguished the flames that were on his chest, and aimed in his medium machine gun and just devastated that uh, Toyota Prado, just aiming uh, and firing fully automatic, that uh, belt-fed weapon. The, that vehicle, as I mentioned of ours, a Humvee was an ambulance, a uh, Marine from the rear troop compartment stood, and that was the only ambulance we had. The rest of the five vehicles were fully encased. So that vehicle looked much different. It looked like it was less armed, armored, and it was. And uh, so they knew exactly what they were doing and they attempted to finish that off after they hit it with a car bomb. Uh, but the, the two commandos in the vehicle, one stood in the turret, one stood in the rear troop compartment with a light machine gun, which is a belt-fed weapon, and they just emptied uh, right into that vehicle, killing 
the three passengers that were firing AK-47s at us, the driver of that vehicle, uh, unfortunately, uh, survived and uh, rolled into a ditch and continued to fight against us through the remainder of that uh, engagement. Uh, but we stayed stationary on that road uh, for about five minutes. As soon as that vehicle was destroyed, we received fire on the north side of the road uh, up on the in that dry riverbed. So uh, we made quick work, uh, vehicles one and two. They aimed in and shot at uh, the personnel that were dismounted and they were moving, they were advancing at us where one element would provide suppressive fire and the other would uh, have dismounted maneuver where they were advancing towards us. But uh, you see that road there, DJ, that's a little bit higher elevation. And when you're standing in a turret, uh, people are, over six foot tall, you have, you're executing that military axiom of take the high ground, maintain fire superiority. So it was very quick work that was made out of those uh, jihadists in the dry riverbed. So people, if you look at this picture really good, some people say, oh, you know, some civilians were killed in the crossfire. Where that spin pool road hits the perpendicular, uh, our Marines fired right down that road. That wasn't a some heavily trafficked road and just vehicle two aimed in and shot that uh, vehicle that was shooting at us. So there were civilians running all over and around in that area, nor were there from uh, what vehicles one and two shot in that dry riverbed on the north side or the upper portion of that picture in the dry riverbed. So uh, if you've ever been in a dry riverbed, it's, it's not a congregation of uh, many people that uh, just hanging out for no reason. They're generally in there for, or some form or fashion. And as the lady that took that picture in the previous shot showed the vehicle, the, the bomb that blew up, she testified in the courtroom that she had workers on the south side of that road. This was a non-governmental worker from uh, Europe. Uh, she said she had workers in that dry riverbed to the south that that were armed, even though the testimony of the Taliban and the that testified in the court said no nobody has any weapons there's no need to have weapons uh, and as she stated that you know she heard different caliber of gunfire going on not just like fully automatic uh, gunfire from uh, our belt fed weapons but she heard you know single shots uh, but uh, you know she didn't say she saw all these people killed but you know we did kill people that day who were shooting at us but she didn't see the hysteria and the ridiculous accusations that the Afghans in that Afghan village who were paid the equivalent of four years salary for anyone that, you know, filled out a claim with no proof. I mean, I don't know about you, DJ, but if, if they're, in if you just showed up at uh, city hall without any proof, there'd probably be more than 19 people that would fill out a claim. If you get four years average salary of an American, uh, but that's they were just starting giving money away. That was part of this hearts and minds campaign. I mean, isn't that an incentive to I mean, on both ends, the generals are getting rich. The warlords are getting rich. I we're mean, talking about the Saladia list. Yeah. Salacia payments. So yeah. Yeah. Give the Salacia payments because it sounds nice. This cool thing. Uh, you know, we're sorry. You know, they put their hands on their heart like General Nicholson does. The picture of him in the book. Uh, is the Afghan apology. I'm sorry. I'll give you this salacious payment. I mean, come on. That's why the number went up to six sixty nine. 
They said the final number was 19 killed and 50 wounded. Uh, you know, here you've been now in that, law enforcement. You should point out, though, that changed about four times. The number changed. That's what I was going to talk about. Exactly. Okay. Because you've been in law enforcement and have any investigation, you couldn't anywhere near accurately find out how many people died at all. And you had both the Afghan National Police and the Afghan National Army arrive on scene with a U.S. Army military police platoon arrived on scene within 50 minutes, 15. So all these agencies were there and the reports were 8, then 10, then 12. There, you, you go back and you read between what the Afghans wrote in their investigations and what different Western media sources now, are you really going to believe when it was originally eight and then it's all these numbers and there's 19 and then there's no prima facie evidence? There's no body, uh, bullet, you know, you're, but you're going to believe just whatever uh, when there's incentives with compensation. I mean, most American businesses, if you said, hey, just fill out this form, there's no proof required and we'll give you a four year salary right now. Probably be quite a few Americans that would be saying, sounds good. And then Absolutely. in the back, yeah, at the back of the book, a few bad men, there's an appendix, an appendix that just lists what NCIS, they interviewed all these witnesses, all these Afghans, so many of them just read it. This was from the NCIS. And so there's some things growing up that talk about my life story, but then you get in the trial and that is when you see all these quotes, that is sworn testimony from the courtroom, much of which was. <laughs> and we're going to get into that because there is some crazy stuff that comes out in court. Before we get to that, though, I want to get back because you, you mentioned him particularly, the driver of the vehicle who never drove a vehicle until that day when he was going to the market to pick up fertilizer. Yeah. And he not only had fertilizer, he said he just spent a lot of his money on gasoline, uh, like massive quantities of gasoline so uh if listeners don't understand when you have somebody that's a village elder uh you know is buying massive amounts of fertilizer and gasoline and somebody can't connect the dots and you're a naval criminal investigator and you just think you you buy his word at face value that he says there's there's no taliban in this village hello this is the only paved road in Afghanistan in 2007, and it connects the capital cities so, of Afghanistan and Pakistan. So what do you think is on the right on the other side of the border in Afghanistan? It's going to be their fulfillment center. Just think Amazon. And so they just, you know, all these guys would go in there in the back of the book, a few bad men read the appendices about the Afghan's testimony. All these guys would say, well, my village elder told me I could come here and get a payment. And when they said, no, we, we're just here to take this statement. They're like, oh, well, I don't have anything to say, but my village elder just told me to come in here and get payment. Uh, you read that again and again and again and again. And then you start to see, like, who had this information? The convening authority did, General Mattis. But what else did he have? He had the testimony of 30 personnel who were on that patrol to include an Afghan interpreter. Uh Conveniently, the Afghan interpreter's statement was omitted by the Air Force investigating officer, along with the, the statements of the uh, Army EOD specialist from the task force Paladin that 
uh, looked at our vehicles and said, hey, these were hit by projectiles from bullets. And uh, but they had all that. They had my my testimony and my polygraph uh, taken by Terrence Victor O'Malley, God rest his soul, who was at that time the president of the American Polygraph Association. So, I mean, they knew what the truth was and they knew what the truth wasn't. But so they had let, already rushed to judgment and allowed us to get kicked out. And that's what this these investigations started turning into investigations going wild. OK, so there's a lot of things that come up there that I want to talk about. Big things. Uh, Commandant is the name of the driver, correct? I, I think I'm saying yes. his name. Right. Lewani, Commandant. The yeah, crazy Commandant. OK, so let's talk about a couple of the things that he said. First, he said he received injuries, but he could never prove that he had injuries. And when he finally did show some injuries, they were old scars, they said. Yes, but he, he got paid and he demanded in the trial and he demanded to NCS that he won. Right. Just 500,000 yeah. and 500,000 more Afghanis that he said was in the uh, glove compartment of the car that he said probably got destroyed. Another thing that he said, though, was this was the interesting part to me. He gave two different times of how many people were in the vehicle with him. Yeah. So here's the tribal elder that, you know, the the government's team was sitting there as a lead witness, thanking him afterwards and, uh, and didn't even really pull that thread back at all. You know, this shows like the, you know, the court of inquiry, this trial that we went to is supposed to be a fact finding panel. It is supposed to, by legal definition, be fair, impartial and unbiased. Uh, it was everything but it was adversarial. Uh, the lawyers, they were called prosecutors and that's what they were there to do. Uh, so it wasn't this impartial uh, you know, there was extreme prejudice going on. They were trying to back up the general who made that decision. Uh, and the convening authority wanted a conviction. Uh, so, but when we get back to that, yes, Haji Lawani Kamadan, uh, translates literally to the crazy commander. Um, so he's, uh, televised, you know, live and we had information. I can't get into all the details of that, but we had information that he was, leading training over on the Pakistan side a few days before of up to a hundred uh, personnel formations that were targeting Americans in that village. Uh, that was in uh, a little binder that was presented uh, to all the members of the panel. And so the government prosecution knew that they just didn't want to talk about any of that information whatsoever. Uh, but that was, the caliber of information that was is the gold standard. There was no doubt about who this guy was. It was known to the court. They brought him onto an American base after they paid him. The, the Army Battle Space Commander, the conventional colonel, John Nicholson at that time, said, oh, we scrubbed the list of everybody that was paid. Uh, come on. Uh, I know you're going to get up there and say whatever you need to say to save your hide. Uh, but that guy should have been charged for multiple offenses of lying uh, and dereliction of duty. But uh, Haji Lawani Kamadan gave his number out. They should have ran that. I mean, the dude is a straight up uh, terrorist and brought on to the base, testified against us, said he was shot, said a year before to NCIS in May of 2007 that there was three people that were killed. He was paid for three people that were killed. In the court, he swore, swore on the Quran, swore to Allah, everything he said would be 100% true. These are his own, 
when I'm saying the book is not my word, once you go in the courtroom, those were Haji Lawani Kamana. That's his real name. Those were his own words. And then he says that there was two people. So if you can't remember, you, you say to NCS, these are your family members and you were compensated for it. And then you can't remember less than a year later in January 2008 that, you know, you had how many people in the car that were killed <laughs> and that you said, I mean, the tribal leaders said that we were drunk and that we that the Marines, you know, wanted to make it seem like there was a car bomb. So we used slingshots with grenades and fired them. And then we, after a car bomb that we were dumb enough to dismount from our armored vehicles and go door to door shooting people. That's what the tribal leader said. And here's, this is a fact, DJ. When we were kicked out, and right before I was relieved, my battalion commander came out to Kuwait, where we were sent to. He came out from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And this knucklehead, uh, who's supposed to be our commanding officer and believe, you know, at least some form of trust in his own Marines, said, is it true? Is it true that you guys were drunk? So at first, you know, no evidence, anything. You just believe the hearsay of these Afghan locals in this Taliban controlled village, uh, we don't need any, not one leader in the United States military that thinks like that. If you completely disregard and distrust your own Marines, you had two commissioned infantry officers on that patrol who at that time had the most combat experience. The other officer on the patrol, uh, Captain as you read in the book, was shot in the thigh during the Battle of Fallujah with a 12.7 millimeter heavy Soviet-made machine gun, uh, nearly died, nearly had his leg amputated. These weren't fresh-faced recruits. These were warriors, real warriors. And then you have these perfumed princesses, you know, just questioning everything, uh, politicians in uniform. Uh, that's. Is there any really question as to why we didn't win that war and why we... I almost want to use the word that we left. We retreated last August. You know, almost a year ago, we retreated in shame and nobody accepted any accountability of that. And now we wonder why the retention rate and recruitment rates suck. You know, don't don't wonder why. The truth is hidden right in front of our face. It's all these facts. Uh, I know there's some people that say, well, you know, there, there's some idiots out there in the internets. I've heard them. It's just, it blows me away. And God bless, you know, in America, we have freedom of speech. But there are some people that are in such denial. Uh, you know, this has been taken. I went to the longest trial in Marine Corps history and without spoiling it for everybody. Then they sent me to another trial where I addressed all the same matter again. This was from a subsequent deployment to Afghanistan. We're going to get yeah. into that one too. The BOI yeah, that you're talking about. Correct. And then the Department of the Navy came out in 2019 in in explicit detail in a 12 page report using very explicit language like, you know, that that original investigation from Colonel Bahana, the Air Force Colonel. That doesn't make any sense to have an Air Force Colonel, you know, with no combat experience doing the investigation. Uh, by the way, he did a similar investigation six months prior against ODA 374, which was an Army Green, Green Braves. Yeah, and he found that these guys who were out on an approved capture kill mission took one shot after they positively ID a terrorist, 
shot the terrorist in the forehead, killed him with one round. They charged both uh, Captain Dave Stafel and Master Sergeant Troy Anderson with homicide. The recommendation was from Colonel Pat Mahana. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the mob. When you want something done, you send your henchman. The guy that knows how to handle a bat uh, has no morals whatsoever. I mean, the the 12-page report from the Department of Navy in 2019 explicitly says uh, verbiage that's so strong. My attorney is like, he's never seen anything like this in practicing law for 40 years. The verbiage regarding uh, Colonel John Nicholson, then Colonel John Nicholson and Colonel Pat Bahana. I mean, these Marines, these one's a soldier, one's Air Force. They need to be charged. Read read the book and you see like everybody that reads it, you know, from members of the media, members of Congress, uh, movie producers, they're all like, how did they get away with this? And that is the number one thing in America. When you get rid of all the entitlements, welfare and all this stuff, the non-discretionary spending that we have to spend our money on, this is the most expensive thing. So if, if the most expensive thing you spend, DJ, is your house and it's just falling apart and it's not working for you, but it's under warranty, you sure as hell would want to make sure it gets fixed and demand that somebody come out. But we're not, you know, we're just worried about the stock market dropping today or all these other things, uh, you know, what's going on with Elon, what's going on with, uh, you know, the next Harry Potter movie, all these ridiculous distractions. But we as Americans will be at war with the People's Republic of China. We are going to lose tens of thousands of Americans in a bloody war that will get launched because why? Because these defense contracting firms want a war. These generals have all mortgage their souls and they are working for these companies. Check it out. Look who's on the board's directors. Look where General Mattis went straight back to General Dynamics. He came from General Dynamics. Look at the current Secretary of Defense, came from Raytheon. Look at the last chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, went straight to Lockheed Martin. Prove me a liar. I wish you would because I wish this wouldn't happen, but we are going to go to war with China and it's not going to be with guys that are using weapons made two years after World War II, like we were fighting for the last 20 years. It's going to be people with aircraft carriers, fifth generation fighters, swarms of drones, and they're going to slaughter a lot of Americans. And there's people in Washington, D.C. and these retired generals that want that to happen so badly. So, so wake up, America. Let me ask you something then. And, and this, I thought it through the whole book. All of this that you say is going to come true, okay, that we go to war, that, that they're I, I'm trying to understand with that, the thing that happened to you happened a lot. You would agree. Maybe not necessarily to the level or whatever, but roadside bombs, uh, ambushes, complex ambushes, those those happen frequently in Afghanistan and Iraq. You would agree, right? All the time. Yes, daily. So I'm trying to figure out, and I tried to figure out through the whole book, why this narrative was pushed the whole time that there was something so bad. I understand we, we set this up with saying those three incidents happened before. Why was it so important to this one? Because we haven't even got into March 9th. Uh, yeah. was it, was it March 9th? The, that that another patrol went out. Um, I I'm just trying to figure out why it was so important that this one went down the way it did. Very, very good question. And so we have a situation that, um, and it does 
require us to kind of backtrack a little bit and uh, I'll give the 15,000 foot, not the uh, nape of the earth and not 30,000 foot. But so the Marines have always felt, especially in comparison to the army, that we're better trained and we have uh, this high esprit de corps just because we're, uh, you know, fierce fighters. And I'll go kind of far back real quickly. The Marines were formed in a bar in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the owner of that bar, Samuel Nicholas, was, uh, you know, the owner. And he was giving these guys so much rum. He's convincing them to, you know, fight the most powerful nation on the earth. And these, you know, warriors went out to sea on these ships and, and fought on land. And sometimes throughout American Marine Corps history, we, we pulled to the side another ship, a man of war, as they called swung across on ropes and started jabbing people with daggers and swords. And I mean, Marines have distinguished themselves and acquitted themselves in battles for more of American history, more years of American history than we have not fought. Uh, so like a situation like this where we're in is very unusual where we're not fighting. I, I know we're fighting in certain parts of the world right now, but my point is we've always thought we were better. To have an elite within elite has been hated. They, Winston Churchill did this in England, where he created from the British Royal Marines a commando unit. Then they went to war behind German lines and wreaked havoc. Roosevelt wanted the same thing, FDR. Uh, he ordered the Marines to create a commando unit, and they didn't want it. Uh, he even wanted them to be called commandos, and the Marines said, we'll call them the Raiders. They were formed in February 1942. They fought for two years in the South Pacific. Uh, they were organized for two years. They fought for a little bit less. And while they were still fighting in the South Pacific in uh, tough engagements such as Guadalcanal and many other places, they were disbanded in February of 1944. With stroke of pen by the Commandant at the time, General Vandergriff said this is not in the best interest of the Marine Corps to have an elite with an elite. Got rid of them. Let's fast forward to another data point. 1987. United States forms up the Special Operations Command. All the Green Braves, Rangers, SEALs, Air Force, they all uh, combine in there. Marines did not contribute a soul to the Special Operations Command in 1987. Uh, second data point, they didn't want, they, they believed every Marine is special. Uh, so uh, what we have going on is third data point, 9-11 happens. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld orders we will have uh, increased capacity for all special operations inside every service. SEAL Team 7 and SEAL Team 8 form one on each coast. Every Green Bray Special Forces Group adds a battalion per Special Forces Group. What do the Marines do? Abstain. They say, well, we'll appease them by sending a couple liaison officers down to Tampa, the Special Operations Command. That's how we'll meet this uh, requirement. Rumsfeld gets a little more agitated. Uh, a couple years go by in 2003, they form uh, a proof of concept. We're going to have 86 guys try to see if the Marines can even compete with the Navy SEALs uh, in the Green Berets. We don't, we don't know. We need, to, we need to find if this can even happen uh, because we, don't, we really don't know if we're good enough or we can integrate the way they do. Uh, meanwhile, we've been fighting wars. We've had our own elite called Force Reconnaissance. But the Marine Corps didn't want to have to pay the bar tab and watch some other person, your, even your best buddy, sit there and drink it. And they don't like this special operations command where you pay the bill 
and your elite units that you're paying for all this special training and equipment, they go and they support the Army or the Navy. They didn't want any part of that. It didn't make logical sense because the Marine Corps has the smallest budget. And why give up all your you know, elite units to work for somebody else and leave you empty handed? It makes business sense, but it was not what the Secretary of Defense wanted. So November 2005 comes along and Rumsfeld, here's the Marine Corps was hedging their bets saying, well, Bush could be Bush 43 could end up being a one term president like his father, uh, George Sr. And guess what? Number 43 got reelected and kept uh, Rumsfeld on as secretary of defense. So what does Rumsfeld do? Marine Corps, you shall just like Moses walking down, written in the hand of God, you know, with the two tablets, thou shall have a Marine Special Operations Command in the U.S. Special Operations Command. So it's it's official. It's happening. They pulled me off the West Coast and uh, they made me the first commanding officer of a Marine Special Operations Company. Uh, I was there on the activation day on February 24th, 2006 in Camp Lejeune, where the Godfather himself, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, officiated this arranged marriage between Special Operations Command at that time, commanded by General Brown, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General Hagee, who was there, and we were their first love child. Um, so they were just hoping that this love child would uh, die on the operating table. You know, maybe something would happen. And uh, I was even told by, and the Pentagon didn't want me to use the name of this agency, but you probably figured out. So this. Re retired force recon Marine that I had served with when he was a staff sergeant and uh, we served together in force recon. He, uh, he retired and he was working over there for an organization where he was allowed to grow a beard in Afghanistan. And he said, Fred, they don't know who I am. I just go to all these meetings inside uh, the Green Bray headquarters. And I've just heard them openly talking about the first chance they have, they're going to get you guys kicked out of here. That's what I heard from my good friend. I won't say his name, uh, but the very first day we arrived in Afghanistan. So I completely was naive and I dismissed it, DJ. I thought I just could, I couldn't believe that like, you know, we've been fighting wars for a couple of years at this point. You know, this was 2007, the war in our Afghanistan started in 2001. I was like, I just couldn't believe that you know, somebody would betray and uh, like whatever. I just literally wanted to start doing our job, our mission. And, uh, but lo and behold, what he said was hundred percent true. when it came to fruition, actually the first chance that something came up that was questionable. Uh, and that's just what they were waiting for. Just like Congressman, the late Congressman Walter Jones, uh, accurately said, you know, that these army officers, they were just waiting. They couldn't wait to throw us under the bus. And, uh, that's exactly true. God rest his soul. Okay, so that happens. You explain why this one was so important. Uh, March 9th happens. They're, they're saying yes. certain people can go out of the wire, but certain can't. So this is Captain East, correct? That's going to take a unit out. Correct. Okay. Well, actually, he was a platoon commander, but he was on the patrol on 4th of March, so he couldn't go out himself. He sent one of his teams out. Okay, so let me get to that because that was a little confusing to me. Yes. With this Captain East, I want to go back to something that you said when you went to officer candidacy school. You said that it's it's about yourself. It's about 
uh, not the unit. It's about yourself. I, I very much picked up on that about this one. And if I understand it right, he had not only done the mission that you said was going to happen, but he also planned another route and another mission without your knowledge. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So my question to that is, is with everything that's happening, because shit is rolling downhill on you guys at a rapid pace. Yes. Why would someone take the risk of bringing even more shit down on top of you by not clearing that? They already know if something goes wrong, which tons of stuff went wrong on this mission. It was a comedy yes. of errors. Yes. Why would they? I, I don't understand with you. And you speak highly of him at different parts of the book. Why would he do that to you? And why would he do that to this small unit? Okay. Uh, there's a couple reasons. It's not as simple, but I will explain, you know, my thoughts on this. So, uh, when you're the commanding officer of a organization and you're, I will say, uh, akin to like general Custer walking into the battle of little Bighorn, you're not around friendlies. Uh, these army, special operators and the army conventional operators, these are not friends of Fred. These are people that want to take us out. So they're not coordinating or having any contact whatsoever with Captain East, none whatsoever. So his mind, he's getting it from me that because he came and asked me, and I mentioned in the book, came to ask me, can we do anything else three times? And it was very clear each time. No, 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 no. So where were these guys planning this mission? They were planning it in our operations center, which is where I even had my, I had a fold out little rack. I slept there. So, uh, you know, some people in the court of inquiry, like, well, he wasn't there at a confirmation brief it's because we planned this mission with them. But if somebody decides like, Hey, I'm going to zig where I told him I'll zag and he won't know any different that, you know, Better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. But let me also put, so he didn't understand all the heat that, you know, I'm getting shelled. So all this heat's coming down on me. And as an officer, I'm trained um, by good officers that I respected, not necessarily an officer candidate school, but when I would hit the operational forces and I was, you know, a platoon commander, I had a commanding officer who, Colonel Jeff Powers, uh, just a warrior's warrior told me and showed me more importantly that the role of an officer is to take to absorb the the heat the pain you are the one that stands up and i i saw him for years you know when we'd have some time off i'd see him go you know we're done training i'd see him put his service uniform on and go testify for a character witness for some Marines that have been accused for one thing or the next. And I'm here, I'm seeing a Lieutenant Colonel and then got promoted to Colonel do this again and again. I saw him do that multiple times where I didn't see a lot of other officers absorb that pain for their guys. So, but that was ingrained into my mind by that leader and a mentor. To this day, uh, Colonel Jeff Powers is still a huge mentor to me, uh, as well as uh, one of these warriors that, uh, you know, was a intern this week. It was another warrior, different time frame. But these men had something in common, and that was they stood up for their own guys. They would take it themselves. So 
I'm absorbing the pain. I'm, I'm the one communicating, but I'm also communicating to my guys. No, we can't do this. But here's the second portion of this. Um, and I'm not saying this to diminish anything about uh, any of the leaders or Marines in our unit. Um, but I've been to combat multiple times to that point, And I understand the mindset of what some of these uh, enemy leaders are doing. They're, I can't get into all of you know, the classified types of intelligence, but they understand some of our capabilities that we had there with our Marine Special Operations Task Force. So they were planning and saying things that we could understand that they're trying to gauge our reaction. But we did uncover that they were going to, they had a plan to run two separate vehicle suicide bombs uh, into the front gate where we were at and then do a massive assault uh, supported by uh, indirect fire. So mortars dropping shrapnel all around us. So there was, it was not this abandonment of like, hey, let's, but I also understood that this has happened before. And when you're kind of alone at Fort Apache on the outskirts, some guys get psyched out by that. And, you know, it's not like I was just sitting there like, you know, easy day, you know, let's take it, take a relax here. I knew that this could likely happen. And if it did, we would have to fight. Uh, and it would be a ugly, unfair fight, but we're going to slug it out. But it's also probably less likely to happen. And it didn't. But uh, that was in the mindset of this captain, as well as our intelligence officer, who the intelligence officer, I believe, had different motives. I believe he wanted to be the next platoon commander to replace on the next deployment. And he wanted to pull the rabbit out of the hat and uh, go for the big win. And, you know, hey, you couldn't do this, but we did it anyway. And, you know, we saved the day and look what we did. So I can't get into the specifics of what their actual mission was or what they were trying to do, because that is still uh, the years that that will take to be unclassified. I can't get into what they were doing, but I will say that the route they took was not a route that I had approved. And uh, I gave specific guidance not to go anywhere besides from our one base to the other base. And yes, it was very disappointing that that was uh, violated. And then we did have uh, other missions going on on that night, which the two other missions also had events happened that escalated to, uh, you know, and, you know, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to do. We're telegraphing the information. Hey, this is what's going on. Uh, but these three missions that went on went immediately sequential one after the other, boom, boom, boom. And that's how we'd been trained up to that point is we're used to doing simultaneous and sequential execution of multiple missions. Uh, and, just like with a lot of aviation mishaps, usually mishaps come in threes. And the night of the 9th of March was no exception. Uh, it was a night that I was uh, very disappointed and, you know, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, uh, it was a very, very low point for me to have, um, you know, your own guys do things that were 
you just couldn't expect that they would do that because these guys were literally like younger brothers to me. Um, as in, I've spent so much time. We've been organized for over a year and I just, again, maybe it's some of my, my upbringing. I realize sometimes I can be, um, uh, loyal to a fault and be stupid in just my trust. And that's happened in relationships. You read this book and this is a nonfiction book, you know, about like dating and marriage. And, and sometimes I'm like a dog and I just don't let learn that, you know, somebody can be cruel, thoughtless and kick you and other people can do some other stupid and uh, things. And when you give somebody your trust and that's, it, it hurts. Uh, so, yeah, well, I want to ask you, you though, Fred, and dating life out. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Trust me. Here's the thing, though, and and it it bothered me during the whole thing. You you say disappointed. You you say these nice words about it. You had to be pissed off. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. This is what got you kicked out of the out of Afghanistan. You agree, correct? Hundred percent. And so I don't I understand. I, I don't yeah. understand how you can walk away. And, and it's a question to you and just say, I was disappointed. I was drained. Yeah. You were pissed. Oh yeah. And I, as I mentioned in the book, I usually maintain my composure. Right. You know, at that time I'd been in the Marine Corps in 2007 for just shy of 20, like a couple months shy. Uh, I came in the Marines in June of 1987. So this happened in March of 2007. So, it's not like I was a young guy, and, but I did lose control of my emotions. And, you know, you know, I, I, I went off on him and I, I mentioned that in the book that, um, you know, it was, it was so infuriating and disappointing. Like I was, I don't usually use foul language in front of my Marines, especially where I'm losing my temper and in anger. Uh, and this individual and I are still friends and he's uh, moved on and proven himself. And, you know, just he really is the man that I knew he was. He just screwed up and he screwed up in a big way. And I let him know. Um, and that probably crushed his soul to know that, you know, he completely betrayed me. And, uh, you know, we have we've talked about this we've we spent time together and i know he and i have both moved on in our lives and our our careers and uh things have changed but i know that still is something that uh we we both realize is you know just you know wish it wouldn't have happened ever and uh you know you look back and and sometimes but you know one thing i will say about that is um uh, I want to say two things if I could. So absolutely. No matter what you do. And I, I say this, I wasn't the guy that was over there doing the physical fitness. Like a lot of these special operators, I will say this, and I'm not the guy that like, Oh, well I was doing all this and that I was awake you know, 20 hours a day. I was not just awake 20 hours a day. I had a uniform on my back, not spending time in the chow hall and, and fun and games and calling your girlfriend or anything working 20 hours a day and you can work as much as you want but nobody is omnipotent nobody can uh 
go and know everything. And if somebody wants to change and you see this in aviation, and you see this, especially in reconnaissance and special operations units, you know, they, to a degree, people have to have uh, decentralization. They have to have some leeway to maneuver. But what he had done went beyond that. It was like intentional, like, hey, I'm going to even say to my my boss, he was like my big brother. And I, he, I know he looked up to me and I looked at him with a lot of respect. You know, he was a guy who almost lost his life and recovered back. And, you know, he literally epitomized like Rocky Balboa, uh, not flawless, but just somebody with just heart that you couldn't even measure. And, uh, but, uh, you know, deeply, deeply, disappointed uh and some people say like you know but you also have to understand like this was a family to me and you know you just but it it cut down to my soul like that really that really hurt because now uh you know marines at that time we we still we came from the reconnaissance community we have a reconnaissance creed there's in that reconnaissance creed the verbiage that's used is, you know, we don't fail. And, you know, here I see, okay, this decision that a young Marine officer made was a bad, like the worst decision you can make, and it's causing us to fail. Uh, to process that in your mind while I'm receiving all this incoming from, I'm on a phone fight, you know, just dealing with this, you know, everybody wanting answers that night because we had three missions going on. And then there was talk that night of kicking us out. And that started right then there. They're going to, they said, they're going to come out and do a second investigation. And you're just seeing, so as a leader, when you're taught and shown by your leaders over time to absorb that pain, you're, you're realizing, you know, this heat's coming down on me, uh, like hundred percent. And, and that's what happened. They fired me. Uh, they didn't want to ask any questions. They, you know, the, then that's when the generals got involved and, you know, some of that, and I want to put some things in, into perspective at the same time, Colonel Haas, who we worked for, he had army green braids that were being investigated for using drugs, like hardcore drugs, uh, had other green braids that were being investigated for prostitution the other green braids that are being investigated for mutilation. And so, you know, none of those had anybody kicked out of theater and none of this said in the press by making comments like Colonel Nicholson did and, you know, to the Pentagon press corps. I mean, uh, all that was handled privately. And, uh, you know, there's a lot in this book that I didn't cover. And you just see like, okay, they, a lot of people had it out for us. Could you say like, well, we screwed up DJ. We, nothing's covered up in this book. You know, it's, let me it ask you a question out. though. That yes. brings something up. And, and I don't want this to sound like a gotcha question. Yes. I really don't want it to. But when you okay. say that, did we screw up? Do you think you screwed up at all? Because reading the book, I don't see it, but now that you sit back, you know, from 30,000 feet and look at it all these years later, 
Was there anything that you could have done better? Was there anything that you could have done differently that you think would have changed this whole kind of scenario? You know, uh, that's a good question. And for listeners, we haven't discussed this yet. I went to a second trial for, and the reason I want to fast forward there real quick is because they asked me that question on the second trial that I went to at a board of inquiry in Okinawa after a subsequent deployment. But they asked me, do you think you could have done anything different? And my answer on the record, you know, from the witness stand or from the stand was yes. I mean, anything, but we did our, I did my best. I did everything I was trained and I, I could have, but you know, could you have been somewhere, you know, just by chance, you know, could, you know, luck or fate have brought you to an area where you could have stopped something and, and decide, but you know, we had trained to do multiple missions. I had for 11 months pushed to know answer to three questions. And what is our mission going to be? Who will we be working for? Which geographic area of the Middle East will we be in? Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever. Never got an answer before we deployed. We got on ship and was told officially a couple of days after being on the ship, 11 months after I'd been, you know, the commander, we were told we we're going to Afghanistan. So, and you know, DJ, the, the swamps of Eastern North Carolina don't look a whole lot like the Tor Bora mountains <laughs> and the Kyber pass in the middle of winter. So is there any blank? Yeah. About you as know, much as Kansas that, does. Yeah. So, you know, but here's the other side of the coin and I'm not trying to take the heat off of me. You know, this has been, I've worn this, I've owned this for 15 years and I, you know, I'm saying like, yeah, I could have been somewhere and done something a little bit different. Uh, that'd be great if that happened, but I was, in our operations center awake 20 hours a day trying to do everything i could but the united states marine corps has never stood up and said we could have resourced these guys we could have given them a logistician to order food and water and repair parts for their vehicle we could have tried to figure out when the marine corps says the most important thing is the mission we could have figured out where this first and only unit that existed for 11 months where they were going to be employed who they were going to work for uh but their mission, I mean, are they going to do just raids, reconnaissance? Are they going to do uh, training, you know, other units? They could have put some effort, but the Marine Corps has never once said they did anything wrong or could have done anything better. Uh, in that right there, when you see how they dogpiled on us and, you know, all we wanted is to stop being accused in the press of being war criminals. And they had a house resolution 21 it was out there from 2017 to 2019 that the marine corps the commandant of the marine corps all we we're asking is for them to say we were not at fault in the ambush on 4 march 2007 in body co afghanistan general neller never he was indifferent never said a word and so that is what is broken with our military there's a lot of guys out there that hate me there's a lot of senior officers that think that i broke ranks that i was disloyal and, you know, I was the officer that, uh, you know, didn't just go down with the ship. And, but there's a lot of other Marines on the listed side that realized like officers didn't stand, no other officers stood up for their own guys the way that he did. And I didn't do it on Facebook. I'm not trying to name names, but you've seen somebody here this last year that 
you know, in his office in uniform. No, I didn't. I wasn't grandstanding. I wasn't trying to make a statement. I was trying to fight for the Marines in a, a civil way as an officer and a gentleman that I was trained to be. Uh, but I was trained to be a warrior and I did it, did everything I could on the battlefield. I, I didn't leave anything on that field. Uh, but I do believe that the Marine Corps failed us. And uh, as one jury member, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Morgan, who's came out very publicly since the war, he wrote the forward to this book. He's a man of incredible uh, courage, integrity, and honor. Uh, has said, you know, that these leaders ultimately failed their country in America and the Marine Corps. Uh, so I don't shirk any responsibility that I had as a commanding officer. That was on my shoulders and I bore it. Uh, I was relieved of command. I was given an adverse fitness report and my career was uh, terminated. I did serve to the last day that I could for seven more years. But uh, well, it, okay. I, I think you're kind of jumping ahead. Let's talk about June 6th for a minute because this was the of everything that happened in the first one. And I hope people go read this book and see everything because we didn't even get into like the crime scene and the collection of evidence and the evidence that ended up in burn pits and all this, you know, all these things that happened accidentally. June 6th. uh, Yeah. June 6th was crazy to me because it was, if you could pick 180 degrees in the opposite direction of why they were mad at you for the March incident happened here. You actually stood up to someone and said, you're doing this wrong. The, the, the fire is coming in too close. You're going to hurt Marines. Yes. So Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, they didn't want you to be aggressive. They didn't want you to, to back things off. What is it exactly that they wanted from you? Yeah. Good question. And, uh, so they, I think they wanted to hang this all on my head. Uh, and when I say, I think this is, a they, they wanted a scapegoat and on the subsequent deployment, which you mentioned 6th June, this was another deployment back to Afghanistan. Um, I was the operations officer and I had a battalion commander that I worked for. He, he was an intelligence officer, never been to Afghanistan and he'd never, I'm not saying this boastfully, but my background is I did one tour outside of the operational forces. And that was an instructor at the Marine Corps version of Top Gun. And there I learned as much as I could about aviation assets, joint aviation assets, unmanned surveillance drones, unmanned armed drones, everything I could. I was a single guy out there in the desert. And I think I've explained enough of my kind of mindset and philosophy, but when you're single in a man ranch like Yuma, Arizona, you don't have anything else to do. Uh, and you're just this guy that was committed, you know. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, planning live close air support attacks by dropping ordnance off the rails of aircraft, hel- attack helicopters, jets, using everything I could, uh, drones. And uh, that's what I really not just love to do, but learn to do to perfection. And uh, 
there was an ambush on 6 June 2011 in Sangin Valley, the upper Sangin Valley of Afghanistan. And this at that time was the worst, most violent, deadly place on planet Earth. Um, and I don't say that like some of these other chest beaters or Navy SEALs. It was just the worst place on planet Earth. Uh, on a previous deployment that the unit that I served with was on, which I was not on that previous deployment, but uh, three Marines were compromised. They were captured. Uh, they were tortured. They were shot in the head and their bodies were thrown off a cliff. Uh, the battalion commander was extremely indecisive. And for 50 minutes, that's five zero minutes after we declared a troops in contact, that's when they, they started to get engaged. The enemy went from 275 meters down to 34 meters and enveloped them uh, on three sides from multiple positions, hitting them with medium machine guns, small arm machine guns, AK-47s, and uh, rocket repel grenades. So these guys were uh, really feeling the heat, uh, kind of trapped. They were in the, they are bogged down in this canal. The battalion commander continued, you know, there's this intel officer with no experience in fire support, no experience in close air support. Uh, I'm sure, just like the saying out of uh, the lessons learned from Desert One, the hostage rescue attempt in Iran that don't confuse enthusiasm with capability. I'm sure he may have felt good for himself about himself and that he was in charge. He was legally Title 10 U.S. Code. He was the man in charge. And when they declared a tick before he dropped and over those 50 minutes, he cut wanting to talk to the lawyer and wanted to talk not to the platoon commander on the ground, the company commander, because that's the chain of command. <clears throat> the company commander wasn't in any kind of position to see what in the hell was even going on. Uh, but this guy was like, you know, went to the Virginia Military Institute and trying to follow these procedures. Meanwhile, the clock's ticking. DJ, if you do that in a place like Sangin Valley, you're you're allowing your one. You're naive. You're 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 stupid and you're derelict in your duties. If in law enforcement you're in a major gun battle, and somebody's there that's waiting in some rear safe area for 50 minutes to dispatch backup, um, this is the equivalent of what I'm talking about. Uh, to me, this is immoral. Uh, this is somebody that's trying to cover their ass and, you know, make these decisions. And anyway, I immediately, we requested uh, troops in contact that surges all available aviation support to our area. So we had two uh, Aviate B Harrier jump jets uh, flown by Marines. They were armed with 500 pound bombs. Uh, these are laser guided bombs. Uh, so it's precision guided munitions. We also had an armed drone up there, uh, an MQ-9 Reaper. It had a Hellfire missile, which is instead of a 500-pound bomb, this is uh, uses a shape charge. So a conical explosion is used to defeat armor, <clears throat> and it only has 10 pounds of high explosives instead of a 500-pound bomb, which is a 50-50 mix of 250 pounds of high explosives and 250 pounds of shrapnel that blast three-dimensionally. So this cone-shaped thing is made to go in and hit on the side of an armored vehicle and uses overpressure to penetrate and to implode 
the occupants of that vehicle. And that's the smarter, if you're a weaponeer and you've been trained out in Yuma as a weapons and tactics instructor, the course that I, I taught, uh, you learned all the different weapons to use and match the appropriate weapon with the target. And uh, that's what I was recommending, the appropriate solution. We also had a Marine Corps KC-130 uh, Hercules aircraft, and the Marine Corps didn't get the AC-130s, like the Air Force has these very sophisticated and expensive uh, Spectre gunships, which have howitzer cannon that just rain down death and shrapnel. So we didn't have that, but we had uh, on one of the fuel wing stations of this Marine KC-130, they had uh, this Harvest Hawk platform, and a Harvest Hawk can hold four of these. Um, it's a Griffin missile. It's essentially a laser-guided javelin, so it uses. It has only four pounds of high explosive. It's also a shape charge, so it's even. It, this is the least uh, amount. It's you could use it very non-invasively, really close when you get in a foul language distance type of fight, uh, and that's what they got into. So they were down to 34 meters. This air is up there. It's been delayed for 50 minutes, making any kind of a decision on bringing any of this to bear. Uh, the enemy's continually maneuvering around from building to building. Um, and then the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Homiak, decides, okay, I'm ready to drop a bomb now. Uh, I give him my recommendation to use either the, the Hellfire or the Griffin missile, the four or 10 pound shape charge. We, at this point in time, we're belt buckle close. They're, they're really putting it on our, our lads who are in this ditch. We didn't know they were in a ditch. Now, I don't blame the platoon commander that's in the fight for that. That was his first true gun battle. and um, But he's in the fight. We didn't have a surveillance camera on the drone that could provide a feed to us where we could visually see. And this is in Sangin Valley. So we're talking flat area, no relief. So... We can't see the contour lines if they're in just a small ditch. That doesn't appear on our map. So we thought he's in the open. And if you're dropping a 500-pound bomb with shrapnel blasting three-dimensionally, that the regulation state you can't drop it within 180 meters, I'm thinking that this guy's going to – he's willingly killing his own guys. And he's making this choice when I'm shoulder to shoulder right next to him stating we need to drop the Griffin missile or the Hellfire. Uh, so this guy who has – literally no experience in dropping aviation ordnance. He's not, he's literally not qualified to do it. You have to go to the school, month long school that we're trained to. And then, you know, after that, you know, I became an instructor, but this guy zero makes the worst possible call you possibly can. Some people think like, isn't this a little too much? Is this guy in people read, you can type in Lieutenant Colonel Homiak, H-O-M-I-A-K. And you type in the news article, soft rep, S-O-F-R-E-P. And you read this article, which has a link to a video, and you see these bombs coming in, and you're like, okay, this is, this is no embellishment whatsoever. Um, and I'll get to what the Department of the Navy said about this guy and how this leader is still in circulation in the Marine Corps right now. Uh, but he drops a 500-pound bomb. It does nothing, has no impact, because the enemy vacated the building and he dropped it on because they're maneuvering around. They're, the, these guys, this is 2011, the stupid ones are all killed. Uh, and they're running circles literally around the Tenant Colonel Homiak because he's not, he, he's somebody that would always leave work extremely early. I'd see him leave ahead of any other officers. It was, it was pathetic. Uh, however, 
they were still requesting aviation ordinance after the first 500 pound bomb dropped the uh, we dropped it five times inside the acceptable fratricide distance which is immoral five times inside what the regulation state we can drop it within with the ordinance that is 64 and a half times more high explosive than what i had been recommending and then uh but you know lieutenant colonel homiak was not taking not only was he taking my advice he was proving a point to me that he's in charge and when a leader has that ego and sees and feels that you know some of the troops they look up to fred and this major who's subordinate is eclipsing me then they want to prove some points and that's exactly what was going on so not only did you drop the 500 pound bomb but those harrier jets checked off station and he fired the once the platoon that was under fire being enveloped they continued to request for additional fire power because they were pinned down they were just getting handed it to them so he fires two surface fire rockets high mars rockets 675 pounds each fires them in open sheath formation so it's not these are driven by uh, gps satellite delivery so it's closed sheath they're going to hit within one meter boom boom he fires an open sheath so it spreads the shrapnel blast out you can see this on the videotape uh, that's in software up like i just mentioned to you so our guys get rocked by these two surface fired rockets 675 pounds each again 50 50 mix high explosive and shrapnel blasting everywhere and uh then when they get back he, lieutenant colonel homiak doesn't allow them to get screened for a traumatic brain injury nor at the end of the deployment does he allow them to get screened for a traumatic brain injury then as well that's dereliction of duty that's showing you have complete disregard for your troops and is that my opinion well i come to question lieutenant colonel homiak as soon as this i got all the facts from when they returned from patrol debriefed him i talked to the tenor homiak about the tail of the tape what happened he said fred i'm willing to sacrifice the lives of these marines and i need to make sure you will too he said come back to me and talk to me about this later in the afternoon so i did <clears throat> and and i'm sure he contacted his higher headquarters letting him know that uh this maniac yes this is the same guy that slaughtered this village in afghanistan years before right here got away with it so I talked to him later that afternoon as he asked and he says the same thing again DJ this isn't uh what I've thought in my mind this is what I have confirmed by another polygraph that I took by Terrence Victor O'Malley who's still at that time also the president of American Polygraph Association and um so he said it to me twice Fred I'm willing to sacrifice the lives of these Marines, and I expect you to do the same in the future. I told him, sir, I know that will needlessly kill Americans, and I have a duty to disobey an unlawful order. And he fired me right there. Uh, when I say I'm I have a duty to disobey, I realize I've signed my into my career right there because he's going to relieve me of my command no matter what. He's going to do this information warfare and paint this picture to the higher headquarters at this loose cannon uh which he did he did a good job of it uh slandering me saying you know he just wants to drop all this ordinance he galvin's crazy you know he murdered this village but 
I'm the guy standing up and saying, stop. We, you don't know what you're doing. You can't do this. And I'm not going to allow it. I'm not going to tolerate this. So I get relieved, sit back, uh, explain all this to the commanding general who uh, backs up his battalion commander, sends me back to Okinawa. Uh, I get back to Okinawa and I write letters to 88 members of Congress, all members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees, to my Kansas senators and the representative from my district that I was in in Kansas. And I send another letter to the Third Marine Expeditionary Force Inspector General, who's I went, they assigned me back to Okinawa. And it had the tail of the tape of exactly what happened, just like I described to you, the level of ordinance, the amount of time, uh, and what Colonel Homiak said in my polygraph I put on there. I, it was a sworn statement. It was sent to 88 members of Congress on the 27th of November, 2011. Uh, less than one month later, I had a signed letter from Lieutenant General Milstead, who is the Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps for Manpower and Reserve Affairs in Quantico, Virginia, ordering me that he signed on Sunday, December 25th, on a four-day weekend for all Marines. He's, he felt compelled, probably ordered, but he signed the letter on Christmas Day uh, sending me to an involuntary separation board called a Board of Inquiry, which went to the Board of Inquiry. And again, if the Marine Corps thought I was lying, they would have just kicked me out for lying. They came up with this allegation that I was substandard. So here's a guy that's deployed more than any other Marine officer at that time, far more. I'm not boasting. I'm just stating uh, a clear fact. And there's been in the infantry and reconnaissance, force reconnaissance, Marine Special Operations. And supposedly this female two-star, Major General Angeline Salinas, who was the president of this board uh, for promotion to lieutenant colonel, she said that's where they, they crafted this statement that said at the promotion board, and this had never, ever happened in Marine Corps history. They said somebody at a promotion board, the president decided this guy needs to go because he's substandard. So this female Marine who was a legal officer, not a lawyer, but like an adjutant who'd been overseas one time in her career to Okinawa prior to the war, never heard or saw a round fired in anger is saying I'm substandard. The guy who signed up for every deployment I could possibly be. So I went to this, uh, Board of Inquiry in Okinawa, Japan, March 2012. Um, the three-member jury found nothing to substantiate, and you know I was cleared to go. They they said there was nothing wrong with me. I, I said okay, I know. Uh, so I went back to work. My boss said, "Fred, they're ordering you to get off this island," and I'm like, "Well, I have like." less than two years, I'll just retire here in Okinawa. They said, no, call the monitor, the officer's assignments guy, and figure out where you want to go next. I said, well, I'll go where I started. If you send me back to Camp Pendleton, California, I'd like to go back to the West Coast. Or never been to Hawaii, so maybe Hawaii sent me to the East Coast. Funny, to Yeah, I wish. Never was stationed there while I was active duty. And then, <laughs> so they sent me to uh, – 
Norfolk, Virginia, the Navy base. But uh, that actually well, that's pretty close to California. Right around the corner. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, a Marine that you served 27 years, you have a lot of friends. You're probably not going to meet too many of them in Navy base, uh, far away from any Marine base. I understand the selection that they made for me, but that ended up being an uh, incredible briar patch that I really literally am grateful for. It ended up leading to, I want to say exactly why, but it led me to get the job I have right now with Tesla, which is the best job I've, <laughs> I've had since leaving the Marines. And, uh, you know, working with young Marines in FAST, which is equivalent to, I'll make a comparison of, you know, the Marines at all these American embassies overseas that are at the post one that are ready to fight and protect those in the embassy if need be. Those are, I'll make a correlation. That's kind of like a, a black and white cop on the beat. You know, they're there, permanent presence in case anything should happen where uh, I was assigned to the East Coast, the Marine Corps Security Force Regiment, and uh, they have an organization called FAST, which is akin to like a SWAT team. Its mission is to provide anti-terrorism security operations for vital naval or national assets. So uh, as soon as I got there in the summer of 2012, uh, Ambassador Chris Stevens started sending communications about what was the threat that was going on on the ground in Libya. Department of State didn't want to put boots on the ground, wanted to make it appear going into election cycle that everything, that peace was breaking out in Northern Africa. Everything was, there's no there there. Uh, so we had two forward stage platoons in Europe. And one of those platoons, we put on uh, ready alert with the Air Force, dedicated Air Force aircraft. Uh, they were tied to the hip for months uh, with them. You know, just on, you're not training anymore. They're, they're ready to go in at any time. But uh, Chris, Ambassador Chris Stevens, uh, communications, over 100 communications were ignored. Um, although we were prepared and ready to go, we went in, we sent a platoon in the day after Benghazi fell. That platoon held the regional affairs office. That's what it's called. And the American Embassy for 90 days. And then, uh, then we retrograded. So, uh, yeah, there was no video that, that created anything that led to those Americans dying. And it was other reasons, but again, senior levels of the United States government covered that up and lied and, uh, and led to inaction and indifference when there should have been decisive action and, uh, effective action taken ahead of time because those Americans those Americans did not need to die. Um, there's been no accountability for that. So one of the things I'd say to your listeners is if you care about America, you better vote and you better not vote for people that are indifferent or people that run in circles with people who are indifferent. Uh, and I'm not saying one side or the other, they're all crooked like that, but you better find somebody that has some type of backbone and some type of integrity uh, is I'm sure not seeing a lot of it. And these people that run campaigns, just the amount of money that it costs to run a campaign, you know, they got to get millions of dollars. And usually they're going to be attached to some Geppetto that's going to be pulling their strings. Uh, so find somebody with some courage and integrity. Uh, you know, I, I lived for four last four years in Hawaii and I'm living in California. So don't, I work for Tesla. I'm not, 
you know, able to be bought and I don't have any intentions to so don't ever try to tell me like, Oh, you should run for office. I'm not like some of these grandstanders that think that they're going to change the world. And it's really about themselves, but we do need leaders to run our government. And that type of corruption that exists uh, is it's, it's rampant. You need to look at who's on the boards of these military industrial complex, which is so much money's spent our tax dollars. And uh, we don't need to get into a war, but we have to be strong. And right now I'd say that everything that we're spending our money on, we're not getting any discount. This isn't Pap's Blue Ribbon. You know, we're paying high dollar. This is some blue label that we're, we're paying for, but we're, we're getting some sewer water in return. This is not the, the army that your granddaddy fought in World War II. This is a completely different, ineffective military and don't let it continue to happen. So that's, uh, that's what I hope your listeners take away. So the million dollar question, we didn't even get into Holly. I hope they read that in the book and I hope they read this, but two wives, a COI, a BOI being relieved of command twice. Was it all worth it? I wouldn't do anything any different. And knowing the pain uh, that a lot of people, I'm not talking pain for myself that um, you ask, you know, like, Hey, you talk very highly about this guy that, you know, kind of did something really stupid. You know, he ended up getting cancer. Uh, he was a co-defendant on that trial. He was tried with me. He got cancer right at the end of that trial before the verdict was out. And, um, you know, had to have some major surgery and radiation. So um, I've seen what this does to people when they're under extreme stress for long duration. The senior enlisted in that platoon that was on the patrol that was sitting in the vehicle right next to me ended up getting severe diabetes. And this was a sturdy lad, a fit as you get. And when you're under this kind of extreme stress, knowing that what you did was right and true, and then you're being come after that 49 prosecuting, prosecuting attorneys and criminal investigators are just raining down on you uh, that mentally breaks you down and it psychologically and physiologically does some things in your anatomy and i'm not a doctor but uh, what i saw happen to the minds and bodies of our marines uh, that i would have to do the same and stand up for them and in battle when we fought and fight i mean thank god none of them were killed so I, yes i would do the same thing in those events as well uh, I would do the same thing for the last three and a half years. These three personnel from Marine Special Operations Command, the same command that I was in, uh, two Marine gunnery sergeants and a Navy corpsman. That's an enlisted Navy medic that's assigned to the Marine Special Operations because we don't have our own Marines medical. Uh, they've been under fire for a separate incident. Won't totally go in because that's another long story. Uh, but I've been fighting, uh, advising, connecting them with legal, with legal professionals, with uh, legal defense funds, uh, advocating in the media uh, regarding this particular case, the MARSOC 3, uh, putting it out on social media, raising awareness. Uh, why? 
because not just because they're worth it, but uh, because there's very few other people who will stand up. And there's very, I don't think there's hardly anyone that has been through these types of events and is still currently actively in the media, social media, standing up and saying, this needs to stop. And if people aren't doing that, then it's going to continue. When you've seen people who have criminal minds, when they're not stopped, it emboldens them and they think that the next time they'll get away with more. And just because they wear a uniform and people respect them, uh, if they're doing things that are unethical, uh, it creates that same thought process in their mind. Next time I can get away with more. Uh, that's these Marsoc three. They've had a at the three year right before the three year mark. This Marine Colonel from Headquarters Marine Corps in Washington D.C. at the Pentagon uh, came down to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and threatened eight of these Marine defense attorneys to include squaring off, shouldering up against the one of the Marine you know defense attorneys, staff judge advocates, and stating like. The, you may be protected by your fitness reports written by your direct superior, he said, but you will not be protected by that Marine lawyer who's the colonel on your promotion board. So he threatens these guys for defending, for doing their job at defending somebody, uh, basically shattering their presumption of innocence because now their defense is shattered, is compromised. And uh, that is something that DJ you'd expect something like that to happen in Pyongyang or Tehran, but not in the United States Marine Corps. And uh, but that Marine Colonel Colonel Shaw, people, nothing happened to him. He shifted to another job, but uh, you know he. There was a media release here this week. You know where he openly admits to other Marines that you know this uh, where he's laughing about it and this. One Marine uh, earlier in his career who was gay got pummeled and beat up. And he just talks about it laughing like, you know, how he didn't do anything. And, uh, you know, do we need America? Do we need leaders like that in 2022 who allow abuse, who threaten the defense attorneys because of their rank and position, uh, because they're defending Americans who defended themselves. You know, their case, the MARSOC 3, they did what every Marine starting in boot camp. You learn this Marine Corps martial arts program. And if you're attacked, you're trained to use the minimal amount of force. And these guys were physically attacked. Somebody came in and clubbed one of the Marines twice in the face, coming in the third time. Another Marine came in with one punch, not two, not a kick, not a weapon, no foul language. They use the minimal amount of force. All three of these men are charged with homicide. And what's the better, what's the greater implication, DJ, if if you're out with your wife, family, or loved ones, and you can't defend yourself or your your family or friends? And where are we as a nation when the Marine Corps is hunting these guys down like dogs and sending messengers like this Colonel Christopher Shaw, threatening defense attorneys? I mean, do do you think that a Marine with over 25 years in service accidentally said that to eight and thank God those eight defense attorneys all wrote sworn affidavits. Uh, but 
for those of you that want to ignore this, uh, please read the information that's available about the MARSOC 3, contact your Congress members. These, if you want to be able to do something, just please read about this and look at all the facts from every side, make a decision. But one thing I ask that you don't do is don't be indifferent. You know, don't not make a decision and act. These three individuals need your help. Uh, so, well, speaking of reading, everyone needs to read this book. It's absolutely fantastic. Can you tell people where they can get it, where they can find more of you, and where they can get uh, a couple more stories about you? Sure. This uh, book is available if you go in, online through Amazon.com. Uh, you need to check your uh, Barnes & Noble. We some have had supply chain issues, uh, but you can order it and get it you know, very rapidly on Amazon.com. It comes in multiple forms, whether it's hardback, uh, audio book through Audible. Uh, Victor Bavine read it, and then uh, Kindle, if they do electronic, or some people want to read that on their phone or a device. So it's available uh, right now. It's been published. They can get in contact with me on social media, both on Twitter and Facebook at, at FC Galvin, and then also uh, they can read more about the book at www.commandoshow.com. Uh, they can uh, look up for more information right there. Well, guys, I think that's going to be it for this week. Definitely, definitely go pick up this book, A Few Bad Men, Major Fred Galvin. Uh, it's an amazing story, an amazing book. I can't believe some of the stuff that came out in it. And we just, I know that it was two and a half hours, but we just scratched the surface with things that went on in the investigation with the with the COI and the BOI, plus personal stuff that went on in your life. Um, and I thank you so much for coming on, being vulnerable, telling this story, getting that message out there about what's happening, about what happened with this. Guys, I think uh, that's going to be about it. If you want some more of me, you can find me on Instagram at DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. You can find me on YouTube at the DTD podcast where all these conversations are in video form. But the one-stop shop to get everything is DTDpodcast.net. You can get audio, video, pictures of Fred, more to the story, layouts of the map and the book, and see way more about this story than we covered on here. Also, don't forget, go to our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. It's an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they are made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also serves an important cause, and I drive this home each week. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And when you go to policeofficer.com, you can get your order, put in DJK10, and you get 10% off your order. Guys, come check us out next week for the next story, but make sure you go pick up this book, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Kindle. It's got the audio version. I've heard both the audio version and read the Kindle version, and they are absolutely fantastic. That's Fred. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys next week. See ya.